Vice Chair, staff is ready when you are. Uh, good evening. Welcome to the Thursday, October 12th, 2023, 5.30 p.m. meeting of the Planning and Design Commission. Meeting is now called to order. Will the clerk please call the roll to establish a quorum? Thank you, Chair. Commissioner Zhang. Here. And Commissioner Chase is absent. Commissioner Lamas. Here. Commissioner Buckley. Here. Commissioner Caden. Commissioner Macias-Reed is absent. Commissioner Young. Here. Uh, Vice Chair Wallace. Here. Commissioner Boyd is absent. Uh, Commissioner Andrade. Here. Commissioner Thompson is absent. And Chair Hernandez is absent. We have quorum. Thank you, Clerk. Uh, I would like to remind members of the public and chambers that if you would like to speak on an agenda item, please turn in a speaking slip when the item be begins. You will have two minutes to speak once you are called on. Is it three? Do we have three? three. It's three minutes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm reading my script too closely. After the first speaker, we will no longer accept speaker slips. We will now proceed with today's agenda. Please rise for the opening acknowledgments in honor of Sacramento's indigenous peoples and tribal lands. To the original people of this land, the Nisanan people, the Southern Maidu Valley and Plains Miwok, the, the Putwin Winton people, and the people of the Wilton Rancheria, Sacramento's only federally recognized tribe, may we acknowledge and honor the native people who came before us and still walk beside us today on these ancestral lands by choosing to gather together today in the active practice of acknowledgement and appreciation for Sacramento's indigenous people's histories, contributions, and lives. Thank you. Please remain standing. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. First order of business is the director's report. Thank you, Chair. I have one item for you this evening. Uh, just wanted to let the Commission know that on Tuesday night, City Council approved the Stone Beetland Plan Unit Development in the South Sacramento area. So we'll look forward to implementing that plan in the years to come. That's all that I have. Thank you. I believe we are not taking a consent calendar tonight. Is that correct? That is correct, Vice Chair. All right. We will, we will, um, we will take all the minutes at the next meeting. <laughs> uh, if we have no consent speaker, then we consent calendar. We have no speaker slips on the consent calendar. Okay. That is correct. Thank you. All right. So then I guess we will proceed with the public hearing calendar. Item 2023-00892, the Towney Bar P23010 uh, presentation. Good evening, Chair and Commissioners. Um, my name is Sierra Peterson, Associate Planner with the Community Development Department. The item before you tonight is P23-010 for Towney Bar, located at 710 K Street. This application is for a conditional use permit to establish a bar within the Central Business District, um, the Central City Special Planning District, and the Merchant Street Historic District. The proposed bar is an existing 1,200 square foot ground floor tenant space um, with a patio frontage on K Street. No alterations to the structure are proposed with this new use. 
The project was not noticed to all residents, property owners, and neighborhood associations within 500 feet of the subject site, and the site was posted with a public hearing notice. Staff recommends, um, oh, I also want to note that um, we have not received any comments and we have not received any e-comments on this application. Staff recommends that the Planning and Design Commission approve the request and entitlements. This concludes my presentation and I'm available for any questions you may have. The applicant is also here tonight. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Sierra. Uh, I forgot to ask if anyone has any recusals or disclosures, so I just want to give the commissioners a chance. All right, seeing none. Uh, Clerk, are there any members of the public who wish to speak on this item? Thank you, Vice Chair. We have no speaker slips for this item. Okay, thank you. Uh, are there any commissioners who wish to speak on this item? This is also a time for motions. <laughs> Commissioner Zhang. Hi, thank you, Vice Chair. Um, being that this project does fulfill many of the um, general plan's goals, and it's also contributing to um, filling a currently vacant storefront, I'd like to move uh, to approve staff recommendation. Thank you, Commissioner Zhang. Next, we have Commissioner Caden. I'll second the motion. Second, please call the roll. Thank you, Vice Chair. Commissioner Jean. Aye. Commissioner Chase is absent. Commissioner Lamas? Aye. Commissioner Buckley? Aye. Commissioner Caden? Aye. Commissioner Macias Reed is absent. Commissioner Young? Aye. Vice Chair Wallace? Aye. Commissioner Boyd is absent. Commissioner Andrade? Aye. And Commissioner Thompson is absent, and Chair Hernandez is absent. Thank you. Motion passes. Thank you, Clerk. Thank you, Staff. <laughs> okay, that concludes the public hearing portion of the meeting tonight. We will move on to the discussion calendar. Item 2023-01224 is the missing middle housing study. Preliminary recommendations and considerations for the draft 2040 general plan proposed for area ratios. <laughs> we have a staff presentation. I hope you're ready. It's a fairly lengthy presentation. Excellent. Looking forward to it. So good evening, Vice Chair Wallace and members of the Planning and Design Commission. My name is Nguyen Nguyen. I'm associate planner and project lead for the city's missing middle housing study. I am joined today by Matali and Roger from Opticals Design, our project consultant, who will also be presenting tonight. Um, I'll first provide a brief overview of the project, including the three key questions that our preliminary recommendations are striving to be responsive to. Um, then Matali and Roger will present the built form recommendations, and I'll be wrapping up the presentation with the attainability and ownership recommendations. Um, so project overview, some background. Um, so in 2021, City Council approved a 2040 general plan key strategy to allow a greater array of housing types citywide. Um, and in response, through a grant from the state and administered by the Sacramento Area Council of Governments, um, the city commissioned this missing middle housing study to explore how this strategy 
can be thoughtfully implemented in Sacramento. There were two phases to the study. The first phase was focused on sharing information about Missing Middle and gathering initial feedback from the community. In phase two, we've used the input we heard and the analysis conducted in phase one, which will be further, uh, oh sorry, uh, analysis conducted in phase one to develop a set of preliminary recommendations, um, which will be further refined based on community input to develop the study's final zoning and design standard recommendations to reallow missing middle in a thoughtful manner. The final recommendations will be presented to the Planning and Design Commission and City Council for another round of feedback, which will inform code revisions that will occur later next year after the 2040 general plan is adopted by Council. The findings of the study will be shared in the form of four key reports. Both the informational report and the attainability and livability analysis are available on the project website and were also included in the staff report as attachments. The third report is a displacement risk assessment to be completed by late November of this year. Um, the study's final recommendations will be shared in the last report early next year, which will help inform updates that will be made to the planning and development code. Um, so what do we mean when we say missing middle housing? Um, for the purpose of this study, we're referring to neighborhood scale buildings that contain more than one home um, this includes duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, accessory dwelling units, bungalow courts, um, and small homes and small lots, ideally located in a walkable, well-connected area. Um, essentially, these are housing types that have been banned in the majority of residential neighborhoods throughout America through the practice of single-family zoning, which currently accounts for 70% of the city's residential zoned land, hence why they're missing. Uh, missing middle housing types are considered middle in terms of form and size, falling somewhere between single unit dwellings and large multi-unit complexes. They also typically deliver lower cost housing options for households that are considered middle income, including many of the city's working class families. Um, this, is, this is not a new concept. These housing types were once common in early cities across America. And even today, there are over 3,500 existing examples throughout Sacramento's older neighborhoods. You could say that early American cities were built from the missing middle. In the same way old triplexes, fourplexes, and bungalow courts still standing do today, missing middle can provide attainable housing options that could help to house our aging and older adults who are retired and are looking for affordable options to downsize, our college-aged population that are currently forced to either cram into crowded living arrangements or to stay with their parents, um, our intergenerational households wishing to live near one another, and many other life stages and situations. Missing Middle provides smaller, more attainable unit sizes. They tend to foster a greater sense of community through shared open space areas, and they support a more sustainable, car-free environment by providing housing closer to employment transit and amenities, which helps to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and air pollution. The neat thing about Missing Middle at the scale that the city is proposing is that they blend in well with the existing neighborhoods by enabling small incremental changes that happens gradually through garage conversions, second story additions, partitioning of existing larger homes, and accessory building units. Um, I think it's important to talk about who could benefit from Missing Middle. Um, the need for smaller, more affordable housing options is growing by the day. Um, keep in mind that the fastest, fastest growing demographic in Sacramento is expected to be persons aged 65 through 74, many of whom are downsizing seniors and retirees, and half of which do not have retirement savings and will be on a fixed income. 
we're also seeing a growing number of young couples delaying or decide, deciding not to have children. A big reason being the choice that they must make between paying for housing or paying for children. Speaking from personal experience. Um, I'm American, so you know, the American dream of purchasing, purchasing your own home has now become a pipe dream for many. Um, you know, what if, for those who have aging parents and they want their parents to live nearby, um, you know, we don't have, a, we don't have an accommodation um, or a housing type to provide for that situation. Um, what if I'm single or want to live with part, my partner and we don't need a lot of space, just a place that we can afford? Um, or what if I wanted to invest in my neighborhood um, but don't know where to start? In, uh, missing middle can present a new economic opportunity for property owners and local entrepreneurs that can help build community ownership over time. Um, so phase two engagement framework. Um, we had several engagement events last year as part of phase one. Partnered, uh, we partnered with Sacramento AARP, Central Valley American Institute of Architects, and the Geography Department at Sacramento State. Um, folks expressed interest and were generally supportive of missing middle. Folks also shared what they thought would be challenges to implementation, including neighborhood compatibility, open space, trees, and attainability. The concerns that we heard can be captured by these three key questions, which is also how the preliminary recommendations have been categorized. Um, the first question is, what could missing middle housing look like in Sacramento? The second key question is, will missing middle housing be lower cost and attainable? And the third question is, how can the city promote home ownership and address potential displacement through missing middle? Um, before we share the preliminary recommendations with you, I just want to share um, the three factors that we are using to measure the success of the city's missing middle framework. Uh, we believe that for the city's missing middle framework to be successful, we must ensure that these new homes are feasible and can actually be constructed, that they're attainable and can help reduce housing costs in our region, and that they fit in well and even can enhance the many diverse communities in Sacramento. The goal is to find a sweet spot, the right balance in the city's approach to help alleviate the housing crisis that we're in. The preliminary recommendations were shared with the community at an event we held at the Culture Club on October 4th. Um, we saw about 150 attendees, uh, many of whom were very interested in building additional units on the property um, for many of the reasons that I've mentioned prior. Um, our our self-guided online workshop with the detailed preliminary recommendations was launched the day after and is available for public participation until November 3rd. Um, it's structured similarly to the draft 2040 general plan online workshop where folks are welcome to review the content at their own pace and provide feedback. With the remainder of this presentation, um, staff will present an overview of the preliminary recommendations which thoughtfully responds to key considerations raised by the community. Um, but before we do that, um, kind of a few items, um, upcoming milestones for the project. So on the 19th, we are holding a Zoom webinar where we will take a deeper dive into the attainability and ownership recommendations um, for those who can't make it tonight. Um, we'll also be checking in with City Council and asking for the re their review and comment on October 24th. Um, reports three and four, as mentioned earlier, will be released um, in the coming months. Um, and after the general plan, uh, 2040 general plan is adopted, um, staff will take the recommendations that, um, are, that comes out of the study to um, inform uh, code revisions to the planning and development code. Um, so tonight, um, as you're listening to the preliminary recommendations that we're presenting, 
um, keep in mind that staff is seeking feedback from the Planning and Design Commission to help shape the study's final recommendations and potential revisions to the draft 2040 general plan proposed land use diagrams, including the potential incorporation of an FAR sliding scale and a missing middle housing district approach, which will be covered in more detail shortly. And with that, I'm now turning it over to Matali. Thanks for that, Nguyen. And uh, as Nguyen mentioned, these are preliminary recommendations that we are sharing with you. And a few of them are being shared as high-level concepts today. Input from the community, the Planning and Design Commission, like all of you, and the City Council will help to shape the specific details for many of these recommendations. So our recommendations are um, for implementing missing middle housing in Sacramento are structured under those three questions that Nguyen talked about earlier. Like, what could it look like? Will it be lower cost and attainable? And how can the city play a role in promoting home ownership and address potential displacement? So the next few slides that I'll present uh, primarily address question one, which is, uh, what could missing middle look like in Sacramento? So our recommendations are informed by a citywide analysis that focused on four key residential zoning districts that cover most of the land that allows residential use in Sacramento. So these four zones are R1, which covers almost 70% of the residential zoned land in the city, R1A, R1B, and R2. And uh, in carrying out the citywide analysis, we looked at existing patterns of land use, build form, existing uses, lot sizes, levels of connectivity, and also access to amenities, jobs, and other services. So a key consideration was, again, access to jobs and amenities, because we understand from our past experience that having missing middle housing within walkable or almost walkable environments almost always ensures its success. So we want to make sure that our recommendations are tied in geographically and in terms of amenities to where it could work best in Sacramento. One thing to note is that you'll uh, see that specifically parcels that are within a half-mile distance of existing and proposed light rail stations, as well as high-frequency bus routes, were considered um, for, as appropriate for missing middle. So what you see on this map is the result of all that preceding analysis. We managed to, in a way, understand the city by, uh, by kind of attributing it to six context types. So each of these context types are a summary of the things that I just listed, which are understanding the build form patterns, levels of connectivity, and access to amenities. So based on this, you can see that we identified six context types in the city. And out of these, three were found to be highly suitable for missing middle housing. And in determining the recommendations that we'll just get to, we asked two key questions that you see on the screen out here. Which missing middle housing types would work best where? in terms of financial feasibility and also physical compatibility, you know, for each and every context type. And also, which, is the, which kind of household, like what are the kind of families that would normally choose to live in this area? So in other words, we're trying to tailor these recommendations to not just where the housing can fit, but also the right kind of housing to suit the needs of different household groups in these areas. So here are some of our key build form recommendations. And again, these are preliminary. The first six that are listed on this page are the major recommendations. And then seven, eight, and nine are um, like minor tweaks to what are the existing recommendations. 
So I'm not going to read out the list, but broadly, um, I'll be speaking to the missing middle housing districts approach. And then my colleague Roger would be speaking uh, a bit more about the rest of these recommendations. So first of all, uh, you see our, our main uh, recommendation is about the missing middle housing districts. So in other words, this addresses where and how missing middle housing can occur citywide and to what level of intensity in terms of development. So our proposal is that there should be three missing middle housing districts citywide, and each of them are derived from our analysis of existing conditions. And the recommendations for each of these three tiers is calibrated to what that area can support in terms of additional housing, uh, and also kind of guided by the level of access to existing transit, amenities, and other services. So first of all, you see that tier one, which is colored in blue on the map, this allows two primary units and two ADUs, so a total of four on each lot. Tier two allows, uh, under the same logic, four plus two, so four primary units plus two ADU units. And tier three, which occurs in a very small geography um, directly attributed to the R1B district, allows a total of eight units, so six primary units and two ADUs. And please note that proximity to high-frequency transit was a key factor in our determining uh, these districts. And the creation of these districts ensure that all parcels within the single unit and duplex dwelling uh, zones that are within a half mile walking distance were assigned to tier two. So it's a modest increase, it's a practical increase, but this would definitely make a difference to the kind of housing that can be built within these areas. And uh, city staff believes that this approach is also responsive to direct input that was received on the draft 2040 general plan regarding increasing housing capacity in transit-oriented development areas while still keeping the neighborhood scale uh, intact, which was a key concern that was expressed by residents in many of these areas. So on the ground, what would this look like? You know, we understand how these geographies would lay out on the map, but on the ground, the intent is for missing middle housing within these three tiers to be multifamily, but still be house-scaled and fit in well within these existing residential neighborhoods. And you can see on the screen now some examples of the typical building types that we are proposing. You see an example, these are all examples from Sacramento. So we are talking about a typical example of a duplex in tier one which covers 48% of the city's residential land. In tier two, a typical primary unit would be that of a fourplex, which covers almost 31% of the city's residential land. And tier three, which is the most intense um, missing middle uh, tier being considered right now, would include a sixplex, but this occurs on less than 1% of the city's residential land at present. On the ground, again, you see that our intent is for this, uh, for this compatibility to be actually be regulated. Like, you know, it's not enough to say that this will be house scale and it'll fit in well. We actually carried out studies and we did um, like 3D modeling to ensure that the recommendations that we are uh, putting forth actually result in built forms that fit well and are a positive addition to these existing neighborhoods. So what you see on the screen here is an illustration of what a fourplex can look like on a corner lot, on an actual corner lot in the land park neighborhood. And here you can see how the bill form recommendations all work together to result in that house scale uh, building uh, getting built. So um, color coded, you can see are all the recommendations such as open space requirements, the built um, envelope requirements, the entry requirements and other such factors that will result in these being again, uh, house scale and compatible additions to our residential neighborhoods. 
At the same time, while the recommendations will regulate build form, they are going to be pretty agnostic and will not dictate architectural style. In other words, we want to make sure that um, you know, all, all uh, freedom is provided to local architects and builders, and we want to allow architectural creativity and expression. But what we are trying to make sure happens is that these buildings actually promote active public uh, like frontages, and they actually activate the public realm, and they lead to more community gathering and of, uh, you know, like a sense of safety developing in our neighborhoods. So now to dive a little bit deeper into the specific build form recommendations, I'd suggest that Roger take over. So as Nguyen mentioned earlier, uh, open space and tree preservation were high priorities that we heard about throughout this process. Um, the current standards do not have open space requirements for single unit or duplex dwellings, but for three or more units, they require 100 square feet of open space per unit, uh, but significantly the setback areas do not contribute to that open space requirement. Um, also, Deviations from the standards to protect existing trees require a public hearing, which adds time and cost to the projects and uh, makes an effort to, in, um, it makes it less scalable uh, when you're talking about many of these projects. And uh, when we're talking about missing middle, we want that to be uh, as smooth as possible. So the amount of required open space is not a barrier, however, when it comes to where the open space is located, the missing middle footprints can sometimes be larger than what you'd typically get for um, a single unit. And so where the open space is located and how it's used becomes an important consideration. So the standards are gonna need updating to ensure that the open spaces are functional and that they're placed in the places where they're gonna be most effective. So the recommendations include actually increasing the open space requirement from 100 to 125 square feet per unit. But in conjunction with this, they would be allowed to over, overlap the uh, setback areas. So that opens up more of the lot for open space. Uh, so you're getting more open space than you'd otherwise be required to, but you have more freedom in terms of where it goes. And especially when it comes to preserving existing trees, this can be valuable because those trees can be incorporated into the open space. And either the incorporation of an existing tree or planting of a new shade tree would be um, a requirement for taking advantage of this additional allowance. Uh, we're also looking at providing flexibility to the development standards for protecting existing trees and uh, making it so that uh, deviations from the standards for the purpose of preserving existing trees could be handled administratively rather than requiring hearing. Uh, this will help to ensure that the shared open spaces that are provided and along with these types would be more functional and that they would support the goals that we've heard about of uh, preserving existing trees and helping to build community through the open space. Uh, front setbacks were another topic that we looked at, and the way that the regulations work now is that uh, by default, the front setback is required to match the setbacks of the neighboring properties. 
Uh, this has advantages in terms of the cohesion of the neighborhood overall. However, in certain locations, it can be a barrier when that front setback takes up a large portion of the site. And we've seen examples where the front setback could uh, be up to 20% of the lot depth, uh, which can make it challenging if you're introducing more units than uh, you have in the surrounding houses. <clears throat> There's also a lack of guidance or incentives for the design of front setbacks, meaning that a lot of what you see is just uh, front driveways and not necessarily something that contributes to uh, neighborhood interaction. So regarding the front setbacks, we're including a recommendation to uh, reduce the default setback um, in non-infill context from 20 feet to 15 feet or possibly 10, uh, and allow, also allowing projections into the front setback for a portion of the facade. But in order to qualify for this, uh, the design would have to include frontage amenities like a, a six foot deep front porch, a new shade tree, things that would help to knit the new building into the existing neighborhood and contribute to uh, that sense of community. So this would encourage good facade design and active frontages and uh, just help to foster everyday interaction with neighbors. And this is an example of what might result um, if these recommendations are applied. So this is a new building in an existing neighborhood that you saw in the aerial before. And so you see that a portion of the facade is projecting uh, forward of where it would otherwise be allowed, but that you also have a front porch that helps to uh, foster that neighborhood interaction. So each of these zones that we're considering has its own minimum lot size associated with this. And these are essentially calibrated for single family uh, development. In R1, which is most prevalent, you're required a 52 foot minimum lot width or a 62 foot on a corner or a lot containing a duplex. And when you combine this with a minimum lot area, you get 5,200 square feet as a minimum size. And this is a barrier, especially in the current, the current situation where we're looking at rising housing costs, because a lot of that cost is coming from the, uh, the cost of the land itself. <clears throat> so one option for making housing more attainable is to reduce that uh, required minimum lot area. So recommendations include allowing lots as small as 1,300 square feet for homes 1,000 square feet or less in area. So this would help to enable more of the starter homes that are becoming less and less available in an area like Sacramento uh, and create new ownership opportunities. So what you're seeing is an example of how two larger existing lots could be divided into a cottage court under these recommendations. So for building envelope, uh, right now, single unit and duplex dwellings are required to fit inside a bulk control envelope. Uh, this is meant to avoid out of scale massing among new homes. 
Uh, but there are some exceptions uh, to those standards for dormers and uh, small pieces of the building that could project outside of that envelope, but it's pretty limited. Uh, right now, FAR only applies on mixed use and non-residential, but the new general plan is looking at applying that to uh, residential as well. So the challenge with the bulk control envelope is that the uh, requirement is for buildings of two stories to essentially be set back further from the property line than they would be if they were single story. Uh, but many of the missing middle types, uh, because they're including multiple units, if they have flats stacked on top of each other, then it's not necessarily feasible to bring in the envelope in that way. And especially on narrow lots, you don't necessarily have the room to play with in order to shrink the building because then uh, the unit layouts won't, won't work. So these recommendations are including a modification to the bulk control envelope for three or more units, uh, which is to say you know, preserving the existing standards for single family and duplex. But for three or more units, uh, you would be allowed uh, a more generous bulk control tent that would enable that second story with the stacked units. <clears throat> but as we've seen from the examples of missing middle housing that are already built in Sacramento, this will not result in uh, uh, buildings that are out of scale. They'll still maintain this human scale uh, format. And we also are ensuring that uh, Types like townhouses or semi-detached where they're sharing a lot line would be permitted because uh, the, the current bulk control regulations do not necessarily work well with that sort of model. <clears throat> According to the uh, proposed general plan, maximum FARs will apply to residential projects. And we've done some testing to see how that would interact with the types under consideration. Uh, but there will be no changes to the current height limit the maximum allowed lot coverage, and the side and rear setbacks. So another uh, major piece of this puzzle is the driveways, especially if you're requiring parking uh, to come, to be accessed off of the street in front. And uh, the infill housing de design guidelines do uh, require parking to be located behind the building or to the side. Uh, but when you have more than two units, the current regulations require a 24-foot wide commercial driveway, which if you think about that um, on a 52-foot wide lot, you're losing a lot of space to the driveway. And it's not really necessary for the building types that we're talking about because um, the assumption with the 24-foot wide driveway is you have many vehicles coming in and out at the same time, so you want to avoid them uh, conflicting with each other. But if you only have four units, it's a very different story. <clears throat> so residential driveways, which are currently defined as a tw uh, 10 foot minimum, uh, those are currently only available for single family and duplex, but uh, the recommendations include a proposal to redefine residential and commercial driveways to enable narrower driveways um, for the missing middle types and to um, make that determination based on the number of on-site parking spaces as opposed to the number of housing units. 
So now we get into our minor recommendations. Uh, these are covering more of the detailed aspects of the missing middle housing development. Uh, but when it comes to waste collection, <clears throat> um, we've been asking the question of whether it really makes sense to have separate bins for each of these units, as would um, be required. Um, and so the, the recommendations are suggesting that you could share larger garbage containers among the units rather than having uh, individual cans for each of the units on the site. Uh, regarding the standards for privacy, the, the infill design standards do have a requirement that privacy may be maintained, but the standards are a little nonspecific. So um, we have recommendations to specify strategies to meet the goals of the standards. Uh, for example, frosted glass on windows facing the neighbor uh, or higher sills, uh, specifying what it means to screen an opening or offsetting the, the windows from the adjacent building's windows. And then lastly, with regard to the approval process, um, we are proposing a discretionary design review process for the missing middle to ensure that um, what's coming through under these recommendations is actually what the community wants to see. And with that, I'll uh, pass it back to Nguyen. Thank you very much. Thank you, Roger. Uh, going back to the approval process, just a quick note. Um, when, what we mean by discretionary design review process, we're talking about a staff level um, discretionary process, which is uh, a very streamlined process um, already. We're not requiring a public hearing. So for my next part of the presentation, um, I'll go over the next two questions. Um, which focuses on the attainability of these units and the uh, ownership and displacement concerns. Um, so will a missing middle strategy really produce lower cost and more attainable housing in Sacramento? Uh, we asked Cascadia, one of our consultants on this project that specializes in economic analysis, um, to conduct feasibility tests on these recommendations. What we found reinforces the idea that missing middle housing is not just middle in scale and intensity, it is also middle in income. Uh, we also explored ways to encourage small scale builders to provide more deeply affordable units for households earning below middle incomes. Um, before we talk about whether missing middle is attainable, I'd like to define what we mean by attainable housing. And when we say housing is attainable for a certain income group, we mean that households within that group could afford to own or rent um, without spending more than 30% of their income on monthly rent or mortgage payment. Um, when we say middle housing is attainable to middle income households, we mean those earning between 60% to 110% of area median, median income adjusted for household size. Um, historically, through smaller unit sizes and more efficient use of land, missing middle delivered housing for middle income households. As this chart shows, these housing types are feasible to build with rents that are affordable to middle-income households. Under each profession, we see the percent of income they would need to spend to afford each housing type. As you can see, even with a doctor's salary, it is difficult to afford a newly constructed, large, detached, single-family home in today's market. Um, smaller homes like accessory dwelling units and fourplexes can create opportunities for middle-income professions um, like police officers, 
teachers, nursing assistants, retail managers, and many other essential occupations um, to help them live within their means. So now that we've established how Missing Middle could provide housing options to rebalance the housing market, which has been skewed toward the most expensive housing type for many decades, are they economically feasible to build? From a feasibility standpoint, simply allowing it would not be enough. There are strategies that have worked in other places like, like Portland that we can look to for guidance. Um, consider this example of a 5,200 square foot lot, which is the standard size of an R1 lot. If all buildings can achieve the same floor area ratio, um, buildings will prefer to build the larger single family products. This means that even if the city allows more units per lot, builders are unlikely to build them. And um, for those who uh, is, are unfamiliar with the term floor area ratio, it's essentially a floor area ratio is the ratio or percentage of the um, total square footage of the lot that you're allowed to build in terms of your building area. So a 5,000 square foot lot with an FAR ratio of 0.5 means that you can build up to 2,500 square feet, half of the size of the lot. Um, and th this is due to their higher rate of return um, as a result of lower fees, faster permitting, lack of experience, and lower per square foot building cost uh, for, single, for the production of single family homes. What we could do to level the playing field is using um, floor area ratio to incentivize more units. By reducing the floor area ratio or leasable area that a single family product can achieve and increasing what missing middle can achieve, we can make missing middle projects more feasible um, and we're calling this strategy a sliding scale floor area ratio. Here's an example. Let's consider the same standard R1 lot, but with a sliding scale of floor area ratio thresholds. The more units there are on the lot, the more floor area is granted. This disincentivizes the construction of large and expensive single family products in favor of smaller housing types. Um, the city of Portland implemented a similar strategy, um, missing middle strategy, through their residential info project, which was adopted in 2021 and has shown great promise as a way to help make um, missing middle more feasible. Portland has seen a tremendous increase in missing middle housing production since their program took effect. In their first year, uh, missing middle housing types became the dominant building type being permitted in Portland's residential zones between the summers of 2021 and 2022 340 missing uh, middle housing units were permitted. Um, during that same time period, only 78 single unit dwellings were permitted. Um, here is an example of how a sliding scale FAR could look in Sacramento. A sliding scale FAR could be regulated through the proposed missing middle housing districts, um, as shared earlier, with each district setting intensity limits on both the maximum number of units per parcel and FAR thresholds through a sliding scale. For each additional primary unit provided, the allowed FAR is increased incrementally. These thresholds were calibrated based on Sacramento's real estate market and prevalent lot sizes in each of the districts. The sliding scale would be designed so that the number of permits allowed um, and the FAR thresholds would be paired in a way that encourages smaller and therefore more attainable units. Um, note that the floor area of accessory dwelling units are excluded. Um, and non-habitable um, spaces like garages would be, would be included. Um, when paired with the proposed missing middle housing districts, um, staff believes that this sliding scale approach is reflective of the feedback received on the draft 2040 general plan because it would increase not only housing capacity, but also affordability in transit-oriented development areas.
Under the proposed framework, a missing middle strategy could provide attainable housing options without requiring public subsidies. Now, is there a way the city could create even deeper affordability through missing middle? Um, the state's density bonus law currently already provides an incentive for income-restricted units, but it only applies on projects with five or more primary units, leaving out projects in the missing middle scale. So one approach to consider is a local bonus program, um, specifically tailored for projects with four primary units or less. In exchange for providing income-restricted units, the city would provide a bonus, which could take many forms, um, including additional units or additional floor area. To be successful, the bonuses need to be calibrated to provide tangible incentives for builders. A local missing middle housing bonus program can help produce long-term regulated affordable housing. If structured properly, a bonus program can help produce mixed income housing with no public subsidy. As the city explores a potential local bonus program, it is helpful to look for success stories. Um, San Diego serves as an, as an excellent case study of a bonus program proven effective in another California city. Recent changes to the San Diego's zoning rules now allow property owners to build more ADUs than permitted by state law in exchange for building income-restricted units. For every income-restricted ADU a property owner builds, they can build one additional market rate ADU. The program has been very successful, and over the course of its first year, nearly 300 regulated affordable ADUs were produced. Um, as a concept, um, through a local missing middle bonus program, the city can encourage builders to incorporate regulated affordable units between 60 to 80% of area median income and accept housing choice voucher tenants um, for a certain number of years. Um, staff is introducing this preliminary recommend recommendation as a broad conceptual idea and is not making specific recomm recommendations at this point. The specific details of a bonus program like this will be shaped by the input that we receive. Um, another key concern um, that residents express is the risk of displacement. Um, staff is exploring ways to promote home ownership opportunities and encourage investment and capital to flow into our underserved communities uh, while still being able to protect and preserve existing affordable housing stock in these communities. Um, it's important to note that there is some research and data from other cities, such as Portland, who have pursued a similar strategy, suggesting that a missing middle strategy uh, where greater rave housing types are allowed over a broad geographic area can help alleviate regional displacement over a long period of time. One of the reasons why is because a market where new housing tends to serve higher income households, this forces middle income households to compete for attainable housing with lower income households. Um, in response to displacement concerns, we need to understand who is at risk. There are a number of risk factors for displacement that can be mapped and understood at the neighborhood level. The city is currently um, undertaking this analysis um, to understand where concentrations of these risks, risk factors exist so that we can proact be proactive in de deploying anti-displacement strategies. The findings of this analysis will be shared in report three of the study, um, the displacement risk, risk assessment. Um, home ownership is a critical wealth building tool to help residents withstand displacement pressure. The rules that the city is contemplating through this missing middle program would make it easier for existing homeowners to add to their properties, creating more opportunities for revenue to help them build wealth and withstand displacement pressure. Since middle housing can produce ownership housing at much lower price points that large single family homes, uh, than large single family homes, it also can help create new opportunities for renters um, who wish to own their own homes. Um, Many of us are probably familiar with the three P's of anti-displacement, um, produce more housing, preserve existing affordable housing stock, and protect our vulnerable residents. 
And so as part of um, our anti-displacement recommendations, um, the FAR sliding scale um, helps to produce more attainable units. We're also um, proposing a local bonus program that could potentially produce even deeper affordable units. Um, and to protect and preserve our existing housing stock, um, an example of a application requirement that we could apply um, would be that an, a project uh, wouldn't be able to demolish units if the units were occupied by tenants within the last year, which means um, it discourages evictions, essentially, from someone just buying a home and evicting the tenants and, and building missing middle. So it gives that year as a, as a cost to, for them to hold that property. Um, um, units that are subject to a regulatory agreement would also not be allowed to demolish, be, to be demolished. Um, historically, discriminatory, discriminatory housing policies such as redlining and race-based zoning have denied equal home ownership opportunities to black families in areas where home prices have greatly appreciated. As mentioned earlier, one of the recommendations is reducing minimum size requirements for new parcels. Um, we are hopeful that this could promote lower barrier, entry-level home ownership opportunities such as small cottage villages, tiny homes, um, especially with the growing innovations around modular and prefabricated um, housing technology. Um, so these are some of the longer-term efforts that the city is considering. Um, we're looking at um, making changes to the city's con condo conversion ordinance um, to help facilitate rent-to-own financing models. Um, we're looking at expanding the city's development fee deferral program um, to include uh, projects at the missing middle scale. Um, and staff acknowledge that zoning and planning standards are only one piece of the puzzle when it comes to enabling missing middle. There are the financing, the building code requirements, um, the condo liability law, and many other factors that are outside of the city's direct control. Um, however, the city can be an advocate for the uh, reduction of these barriers. Um, so that concludes the presentation. Again, staff is see seeking feedback from the Planning and Design Commission to help shape the study's final recommendations and potential revisions to the draft 2040 general plan proposed land use diagrams, including the potential incorporation of a floor area racial sliding scale and a missing middle housing district approach. Um, I am joined by Matt Hurdle, um, Long Range Planning Manager, and Mitali um, from Opticals Design to answer any questions. Thank you. Ewan, great job. Uh, we're gonna open up for commissioner questions and then we'll take public comment and then we'll take commissioner comments. Um, so we'll get started with uh, Commissioner Caden. Thank you, Chair, and um, thank you to staff um, for, for the presentation and for all your hard work on this issue. It's a um, remarkable amount of work that went into this, so I just wanted to express my gratitude for, for what's already gone into this and um, all the work that's coming over the next year. Uh, not done yet. So I, I do have a lot of questions, so bear with me here. Um, I, I think the, the key strategy to open up single-family neighborhoods to a variety of housing types it's, it's probably the most controversial thing that um, we're doing as a part of this general plan update, so it's really critical that we get it right. I think there's a number of really fantastic um, recommendations in there on things that feel like really small, kind of mundane details as you're going through the presentation. I think it's easy to think like, oh, that's like, that couldn't possibly make a difference. They make a difference, they all add up. So, um, you know, some really good recommendations in there. But I, I have to say I found um, some of the recommendations in there are pretty unambitious, and especially as it related to the, the unit caps. Um, we've been talking for, uh, I guess, years now 
about this move away from unit-based density restrictions, um, more towards floor area ratio, more towards form-based um, standards, right? I think, Matt, you frequently use the, the line that we're regulating the box rather than the, the units in the box. I think that's a great way to put it, and it's a really good policy move, right? Um, these recommendations backtrack to me on that idea, and, and once again, we are, we are instituting these unit caps across the vast majority of the city. And so I, I guess my, just a general question first, like why are we moving away from that idea in 70% of the city that's currently R1 and R2? Like why is it a good idea for 30% but not in 70%? All right, thank you, Commissioner, for that question. Again, Matt Hurdle, Long Range Planning Manager. So as we set out for this key strategy, uh, we, you know, we've heard a lot of input and we had a lot of discussions over the last, well, three years now. And uh, what we heard and committed to as staff were a couple things. One, what, you know, what we're talking about, obviously, is predominantly single unit dwelling zones, single family zones uh, that have one or two units and what we heard was, if we're gonna do this, we need to understand that they're different than our commercial corridors, they're different from where we allow large multi-family buildings, and it's important to maintain that human neighborhood scale. So looking at the district approach was in response to our commitment to give some confidence in what we're talking about here. I think that floor area ratio in, in concept is, is really hard for folks to visualize what that means in terms of the change citywide and the change in the neighborhood and reflects, you know, the incremental change of what this approach is about, right? It's about these housing types that we talked about, which is the duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, bungalow courts. Those would be allowed through this approach and the tiers reflect lots of different analysis, financial feasibility, proximity to transit, uh, proximity to walkability amenities, and the reality of the different uh, geographic locations or you know, how our neighborhoods are, are situated. But the district tier approach also allows four times the number of primary dwelling units uh, allowed now in most cases. And so it is still a significant increase for uh, a number of housing units, and these housing units are very much focused on more attainable housing units. And so the sliding scale that we are introducing is a really important part of the equation, I think, because if we just have blanket FARs or crease FARs, one or two, what we're talking likely will happen, as Newman pointed out, is very large homes that are very unattainable and don't meet the intent of what we're trying to do with missing middle. So I think that's 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 basic premise of of where we landed on the district tiers. So I'm you know I'm hearing that this is still a drastic increase from one to four, um, but I, I, I want to make sure I'm understanding the recommendations right then because is it true to say though in that tier one area in in the recommendations it says that these are areas through SB nine through ADUs you can get up to four. Um, so uh, for that 48% of the city that's in the tier one, are we not allowing any more housing than already is allowed through those means? 
Yeah, thank you for the question about SB9. I think, you know, one thing, SB9 only applies to R1. We're proposing Tier 1. We apply to, you know, R1A as well. So SB9 is very, you know, restrictive in that way. Also, SB9 has relatively onerous requirements, and, and there's a number of hoops you got to jump through to meet, uh, to be able to do that. Uh, so this would reduce the, those barriers to doing duplexes or fourplexes by right. Um, and so that's, you know, part of that is that it's a localized approach. I think it's going to be um, easier to get it done uh, as well as it's going to apply to more, more zones than SB9 does. And we have, you know, in terms of the ADUs, the 2 plus 2, the 4 plus 2, it's, it's really a, a premise of state requirements uh, to, to require a minimum amount of ADUs. For the for the tier three um, areas, so understand that um, caps out at eight units a parcel. The recommendation is only for that tier to apply to a really tiny sliver of the city, right? Zero point two six percent of residential land, um, and then only in certain neighborhoods in the central city. Um, curious if you could explain why, like, why that tier only applies to some parts of the central city, but then not in others. Um, I can uh, uh, respond to that question. Um, so, through discussions with uh, our staff and uh, some and community members, um, there was concern about um, historic districts and historic landmarks and historic properties being affected potentially by um, you know missing middle, which is you know a very new um, zoning change that would happen. And so we 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 want to be careful with what we are allowing and to. Um, allow things to happen in, in an incremental way, um, and to also reassure our historic preservation folks that we are, you know, uh, listening to their concerns and and that we are thinking about um, how we maintain the historic properties um, in those uh, historic districts in Sacramento. Is I mean, is is there a significance threshold between a six-unit building and an eight-unit building for historic districts? Like is is a six-unit building respecting historic heritage and then an eight-unit building is not, even if it looks the same size? I would say, you know, also uh, one thing to keep in mind is what we talked about, the local bonus program, the state density bonus program. The state density bonus program applies to five primary dwelling units or more. So in historic districts, for example, if you allowed six primary dwelling units by, uh, by right, it would also be subject to the state density bonus, which means that you could essentially, depending on its proximity to transit, you could go as high as you want. You could provide, as, you could go as big as you want. You could exceed the standards. And so, what we would, what we could see in our historic districts next to landmarks would be very large buildings that don't um, respect the scale of the historic district or the buildings around them. So that's one consideration to keep in mind. Being able to use state density bonus seems like a, a feature, not a bug for, for me. But um, I, I read through the full attainability livability analysis, and I do have a couple of quick questions on some of the findings in that report, and this might um, bring in some of the, the consultant work. Um, really appreciate that you know we are looking at the feasibility testing section. I think that often gets left out of these types of um, decision-making processes. So um, that is very good to see that we're looking at you know, how affordable these products are likely going to be, um, you know, where they're feasible to build. Um, I wanted, there was a, a confusing graphic, though, in there, and I'm, I'm hoping that um, we can just get a little bit of clarity on, it was on page 139, and it was this big graphic that kind of showed testing all these different product types. 
And again, where would they be feasible? How affordable would that be? And so I want to make sure I'm reading that right. And I'm specifically, if, if it, yeah, and I'm sorry if you have to pull out the report. Um, I'm specifically interested in, in comparing two particular products, the sixplex plus two ADUs and the fourplex plus two ADUs, because I think that, that's a really big distinction, right? It's the distinction between um, tier two and tier three in the recommendations. Um, and so what I, what I understood from that graphic was that both of those products are feasible to build in these really strong sub-markets. So, you know, the East Sac, Elmhurst, Oak Park, Land Park, Curtis Parks of the world, right? Um, but that the sixplex plus two ADUs, the bigger product, was delivering more affordability than the fourplex plus two ADUs. Is that, am I reading that graphic right? Yeah, totally fine. And yeah, I mean, I think the way I was reading it, um, which I'd love for you to confirm, is that essentially the fourplex plus two ADU product, it's affordable, maybe around 115-ish percent AMI, and then the sixplex plus two ADU product is affordable around 85 percent AMI. So there's there's a tangible affordability benefit to getting to that sixplex plus two ADU product. It was also, I believe, if I'm uh, thinking, again, I'm sorry, I'm downloading the PDF right now, but that also at, was attributed to the market tier. If you're referring to the one that has uh, like yep. kind of these bars that define the different markets, so typically missing middle types are functioning well or are being at least close to feasible. Within we get you to come up to the podium so we can sorry. get this on record. I apologize, um, you know, I thought that I could project enough. So if I'm understanding the graphic correctly, uh, Commissioner, this is talking about the different market tiers, and definitely if we have more units within the same building footprint, on a per unit basis, this would be more attainable. Overall, as a building type though, depending on where this product is being proposed, the sixplex may not be as feasible as uh, say even a lower tier type, depending on the market tier that it is falling in. So I'm just going to refer to the exact graphic that you're talking about. But by and large, we found that within current market uh, conditions, you know, only within the strong market tier are the missing middle types currently close to feasibility. In fact, the most feasible type was a very small size fourplex. And another very feasible uh, type was an, uh, like a conversion, like an existing home in which two ADUs were added on to make it like a multi-generational home. But that was because the land cost could be taken out. So overall, it's still not close to feasibility, but a lot of these recommendations would play a key role in just, in just pushing it over the edge that they're feasible in more than just the strong markets. Even in the transitional markets, these might get feasible. Understood. Okay, so, but it, yeah, and, and again, please, please do correct me if I'm, if I'm not interpreting it right, but it, it does sound like that the sixplex plus two ADUs is, more, is gonna be more attainable than the yes. fourplex plus two ADU product, which is, those are the, the differences between tier two and tier three. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's delivering more affordability. It's gonna be feasible in um, these strong submarkets, which include a lot of high opportunity neighborhoods per the TCAC opportunity maps, which, which we committed to, to building more affordable housing types in as part of the housing element. That was, that was adopted and committed to in the housing element. Um, these are neighborhoods that, by the way, have excellent access to transit, 
um, via light rail. They're the types of lot configurations in that study that showed best facilitate multiplex products per the analysis. They're extremely proximate to employment centers, right? They're next to the med center, there's they're Sac State, there's multiple hospitals, Broadway offices, right? Um, and there's some of the best places in the region um, to build housing for, for, from a climate perspective. They're very low VMT. I guess I'm trying to understand from a policy perspective why we're capping these neighborhoods at six when it seems like they're checking all of those different boxes. Maybe it's a rhetorical one. Um, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, you don't need to answer. <laughs> comment on question. Well, I, I'll have comments later, but I, I mean, I think I am advocating for an increase in the cap in tier two. I see. Okay. Yeah. Just wanted to make that yeah. I so. also just want to clarify one thing, that one reason why, um, you know, this grouping of the tiers has happened in this way is also that we were not looking at each and every residential zone. You know, we are looking at these four, um, you know, primary residential zones, and in a way, um, I'm sure that there would be additional housing opportunities in many of these zones which are along corridors, you know, where there is potential for conversion into mixed use and current changes in state law are making it more feasible to build mid-rise housing and low-rise housing, which we know can deliver a lot of attainable and affordable housing products. So in other words, um, like not to kind of debunk anything that you're saying, it all makes total sense to me and I'm in full agreement. But what I'm trying to say is that the missing middle housing recommendations are not the sum all. It's like a part of additional housing strategies that need to be employed in just making sure that we fully maximize access to transit and the availability of attainable housing. Understood. Uh, I'd also like to add real quick, Commissioner Caden, that um, if you take a look, if you consider the uh, proposed local bonus program, um, in order for a local bonus program to truly provide a tangible incentive for builders and property owners to produce and provide um, income-restricted units, um, you know, there, there would be no incentive if you allow um, a, you know, a, a, a large amount of units already. You know, anything ab above four, um, I feel like, um, anything above six, four primaries and two ADUs, um, that, I think above that, if you want to go above that, then that's where the local bonus program can, can, can you know, play its role. Un understood. I, I mean, yeah, understood. So, so going back to the recommendations in the staff report, I, I'm, you know, I am just, I want to touch on a couple other things here. I'm excited to see all of the recommendations on the small lot, um, single family and townhome style development. I think those are really good recommendations. Um, You've seen a lot of success with this in other parts of the country. Houston comes to mind. I know we're not like wanting to copy Houston's housing paradigm per se, but they've been very successful at delivering um, low-cost homeownership opportunities. So it, it's worth looking at that. Um, I see in the recommendation in there, so we're looking at reduced minimum lot dimensions to allow lots as, as small as 1,300 square feet, which I completely support. And then it said um, with homes 1,000 square feet or less. Just curious, does that 1,000 square feet or less figure um, come from anything in, in, in particular? You know, I understand we're trying to encourage smaller unit sizes, but it feels a little bit restrictive maybe to me if the point is to kind of facilitate that product being feasible. 
Yes, so uh, the figure of 1,000 square feet, uh, again, it's not binding. These are preliminary recommendations. But this was the figure that we arrived at by looking at several things, that within each of these individual smaller lots of 1,300 square feet, based on all the concerns we had heard about open space and livability, we wanted to make sure that there is some open space available on, uh, on each individual lot, even though it's a much smaller lot. Then also we were looking at a figure that would be enough FAR for it to be actually feasible based on the feasibility studies. And then we were also looking at what is being built in the current market as a two-bedroom unit. So again, 1,000 is um, like a benchmark that we are following right now. It can be smaller. It can be slightly larger. But this is what we arrived at as a, as a good median um, threshold for us to consider and to get feedback on. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like a lot of the townhome-style development that you know, we see are kind of in that 1,000 to 1,500 maybe square foot range. It's still pretty reasonably sized. It's still a lot you know, smaller than most large single-family homes that are built today in the region, so you would still kind of get some of that affordability. would hate to preclude that. Um, you know, staying on those lines, the sliding scale FAR maximums, um, so those are, you know, I, I very much understand we're seeking to make projects with more units, more financially feasible. Um, I totally agree with that. I know there's been a lot of success in Portland. It's worth um, emulating that. Um, worried about how that could impact some of the small lot stuff we just talked about. So I want to make sure I understand. So the R1, say you have like an R1 lot and you're getting down to 1,300 square feet. Are we applying this sliding scale FAR recommendation to that? Because I think we have, you know, 0.4 FAR, right? So if you're actually applying that, we're talking about a 500 square foot home. Um, is there like a minimum lot size at which we're applying the sliding scale? Um, that's a great question, Commissioner Caden. Um, so the details of the small lot standards um, are yet to be um, developed, and so those are the type of feedback and comments that we are looking for, and so staff will keep that in mind as we uh, move forward. Okay. Um, one other question on the sliding scale. So the general plan is essentially setting the lowest max FAR across the city at 1.0, um, but then the sliding scale FAR recommendations in the item, are, they're, they're looking at what looks like pulling that number back, even for projects that are maxing out the units. Um, so for example, in the like 34% of the city that's, that's tier one, um, R1, the recommendation I think I saw was FAR, the max was 0.6 for a fourplex. Um, is that right? So even for a fourplex, like this recommendation is essentially to reduce the FAR below the general plan proposal? Thank you, Commissioner Caden. Um, so the reason that you see this table set up the way that it is is because for those final two units uh, in each of the tiers, they're ADUs and they are not counted toward the FAR total. So the idea is that uh, when you're including the ADUs, the actual floor area of the building would approach the 1.0. It's just that because of the way that the regulations are set up, they don't actually count toward the FAR figure, if that makes sense. Okay, but it would, it would be reducing the max FAR below the general plan. For a fourplex, it would be at the, it'd be at the one. In tier one, R1, I'm seeing 0 
Well, tier one wouldn't allow for a fourplex. Oh, I see. It'd be two plus two ADUs. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I that's see. right. Okay. And, um, and just to quickly add, um, the way that we arrived at these numbers is also to really look at encouraging attainable unit sizes. Um, and so if you have a, if we know that ADUs don't count towards FAR, and if we allow a duplex, um, and we allow one FAR, um, you're, you're looking at really large, you know, up to 2,500 square feet units, really. So th th those, those units would not be attainable, and so that wouldn't achieve what we're trying to achieve here. Yeah, cer certainly support the, the idea of the sliding scale to try to limit the size of single-family homes. For, for Tier 3, um, which the general, so similar question for the Tier 3, I guess, basically. General plan has an FAR of 2.0 for those areas. The sliding scale is proposing a maximum of 1.6, even when you max out the units. So it, is that another kind of ADU situation there? Why are we reducing the max FAR um, when, when you're trying to max, the, or, or for projects that are maxing out the units, which is what we're trying to encourage, I think? Certainly open to suggestions on you know different numbers there, but really it comes down to the, the attainability of them. Again, I mean it's really really focused on that. We've seen dramatic results in attainable units in Portland, and that's where we're we're aiming towards. And again, it doesn't include the ADUs, so two additional units wouldn't be factored into that. Yeah, I guess I would recommend keeping the same FAR that we have in the general plan rather than reducing it. I think my last last question here um, is: I think I'm a little concerned about the recommendation to require a discretionary. Um, design review process for all missing middle housing projects. I understand it's a staff level, you mentioned that, Nguyen, um, discretionary review process. Um, I don't know, it seems like our ministerial process has been a massive success in streamlining more infill multifamily housing across the city. I guess I'm wondering why we would, why would, why would we go backwards from that? Like why are we requiring a more onerous approval process um, than exists today for, for missing middle? Yeah, and uh, I can speak a little bit to the ministerial approval process that we have in place, you know, the first of its kind in the state, uh, kind of following up on SB 35. So a couple things there. Uh, one, our ministerial approval infill housing applies to two to 200 units, but there is screening criteria. It doesn't apply to all areas of the city. There are certain things because it's, it's a, a checklist. So there's environmental considerations. There's plenty of development considerations. And so uh, it does apply, and folks can, can apply for that, but it has to be in, you have to meet all the different criteria. And then as uh, folks are aware, you know, the ministerial approval process is a checklist. There is no abil uh, ability, it's all objective standards. And as we're creating all these new standards, development standards and design standards and doing this for the very first time in the state, it is important to have some back and forth with the developer, applicant, builder to really dial it in. It's not to break an onerous process. In fact, it's a staff level. It's not going to be a hearing level. It's certainly not going to be planning design commission. Um, staff level decisions can be appealed to director level, but the intent is to work very quickly uh, with staff and, and the applicant to do, um, to, to get it right, especially in this first, first year of implementation when this hasn't been done before. Uh, second to that is uh, applicants can take advantage of the state's SB 35 and for units of under 10, or under 10 primary dwelling units, it's a pretty streamlined process. So if folks want to go through a ministerial process, they can take advantage of SB 35. Do we, do we have a sense of what, um, 
going to the discretionary design review process does for from a CEQA perspective. Um, typically, the application of CEQA is triggered when you go from non-discretionary to discretionary. Is there an I mean, is there a concern, I guess, that you could have uh, somebody sue a missing middle project because there's more of an environmental report on it? Or I'm hesitant to go into example, like you know, talking about what ifs on CEQA because you know we want to evaluate each each project. But what I can say is, you know, we've been very intentional about streamlining environmental review citywide, right? So we're going to have a master environmental impact report, hopefully um, certified and adopted by city council through the 2040 general plan. We have specific plans, and we've done a whole lot. Um, the commission's done a whole lot to push down approvals to the staff level, you know, um, in the last recent years. So. Um, when, I'm not going to speak specifically to what the secret treatment would be, but we have been very intentional about um, streamlining housing development. Sounds like there could be an opportunity to to not to have some sort of exemption still, even though it's a discretionary process. Is that fair? I'm getting a nod from Greg. So. <laughs> no, you don't have to get up if you don't want to. Good evening, Vice Chair, members of the Commission. Greg Sandlin, Planning Director. Um, yeah, absolutely. We, we we give out categorical exemptions pretty liberally for these types of projects. Um, and yeah, we have statutory exemptions in the Central City, um, other specific plan areas. And I just wanted to clarify, a staff level decision cannot be appealed to director level. Um, there is a request for reconsideration at staff level, but um, that's it. It's really new information for us to consider before we finalize our decision. Okay, that makes a ton of sense. Thank you. All right, I'm sorry, I'm done now. <laughs> sorry, I yield my time. Excellent questions. Uh, next, we have uh, Commissioner Young. Thanks. I uh, appreciate just all the work that's been put into this missing middle report. I feel like um, this report has really kind of helped sort of crystallize uh, a, a, a clearer vision of, of what what you guys are really trying to, to go after. And I think this report was really helpful for, for discussion. Um, I, I have only a few questions. Um, I think my first question goes back to feasibility. And I, I recognize that the scope of this work is really focused on the regulatory requirements and talking about FARs and whatnot. But we, we talk about feasibility and and in my mind, feasibility also means, um, you know, how will these units be built? And um, in my mind, it's, it would appear that we're relying on existing homeowners to find access to capital to sort of build these additional units. That's kind of one part of the universe. And then there's potentially developers who are looking at new construction opportunities, which I would imagine would probably be focused in the south area because there's a lot more developable land that's there. Um, so I was just kind of maybe hoping to get some kind of clarification, kind of like, is that kind of what, what the, the idea is as far as kind of the universe of developers, existing homeowners wanting to make an addition and then uh, you know, kind of new developer, developers who are looking to do new construction? Is that capture the universe? Uh, when we assess feasibility, we looked at market conditions. 
So the process was establishing, uh, like looking at what are the current market strengths for both rental and for sale products all over Sacramento. And then we had about two dozen building types on different lot sizes that were tested for feasibility as both for sale and as rental products. Now, the way this is done is typically assuming like a builder or a developer's performa analysis. Now, I'm, the econ I'm not the economist on the team, so I'm just kind of outlining the process for you. So don't ask me the exact formulae. But essentially, the point is, does it make sense for an average small-scale developer to build on a per-unit basis, given current land costs and construction costs. Right, and so I was hoping to find the pro forma in the exhibits. We um, have included I, the summaries, but the pro forma is like a, kind of it's like a live spreadsheet, which would be difficult to actually include. And again, I just want to clarify that the pro forma is like, it's a moment in time. Of course, right? of so, course, but, yeah. because I was seeing those internal rate of return percentages, right, 18% or, or whatnot, and and I, I think that, um, again, I, I, I'm scrutinizing kind of financial feasibility as far as like, okay, is is this product even feasible to, to build in this market? And because I, I, because there's part of me that's thinking like, okay, well, why aren't we seeing more developers pounding on the door to create more of these products, right, uh, here in Sacramento now? It, has it strictly been because of the regulatory environment? I, I mean, I don't know if that's, I, I don't know if that's the sole answer, right? I, I think that, um, I, I think it has to do with the economics of the world that we live in. And so I think that economies of scale becomes really important. I, I'm just thinking in terms of the new developer. I, I, I don't know enough about the universe of existing homeowners who want to build an addition, but but I think that that, that part, I, I would just like to see a little bit more transparency on, on the numbers and the exhibits. Right. Um, yeah. I just think that, I, I love the exercise that we're going through, but but I think that if we want to continue to encourage and incentivize this product type, which I'm in full agreement with, um, I just think that um, that we I think we need to, a little bit more rigor as far as just seeing what's what's there so that we can have that conversation um, to see if there's something else that we might do to to incentivize uh, have a more educated idea of how to incentivize right. this product type. Yeah, no, thank you for your comments, Commissioner. And um, I would say broadly, we have looked at also, like as we discussed a little bit earlier, that if you have the case of someone owning a property and adding on or kind of uh, converting their existing property to become a missing middle type, it's obviously more financially feasible. So in terms of kind of local homegrown redevelopment, this can totally happen at an incremental level, simply because you, we are assuming that you own the land. You know, so for an average Sacramento homeowner, missing middle housing will definitely be viable. Now, among the other things that you talked about, you know, there's, it's not a secret that uh, land and construction costs are pretty high in Sacramento as in all of California, but that is not the sole reason why we don't see everyone, you know, like clamoring to build missing middle housing. That's also because of regulatory constraints that have existed in most cities, and also because the financing structure for these products is often not very well established. Things are changing now, 
You know, for example, at our workshop that day, I mean, not specifically to Missing Middle, but we, there was, for example, a booth staffed by a group that financed only ADU projects. So in other words, you know, the market is changing. There were no such um, available resources even as short as like three years ago. So, you know, the very fact that something like the entire city of Sacramento is trying to promote Missing Middle gives a very clear message to builders, and builders are generally very quick to adapt. We have seen how quickly missing middle housing has picked up in Portland. Within just one year, the percentage of missing middle compared to single family development is more than four times. So, you know, we believe the demand is definitely there. It's just, you know, they, it takes a little bit of time for the financing to get in place, but already developers are finding ways to create these products. So, you know, I think this is like the first step and we are definitely very optimistic. And again, in terms of more transparency, we can um, discuss as to how to kind of share with you more of our assumptions and findings. We'll be happy to get your input on that, yeah. Great, um, thank you. Um, my second question revolves around the density bonus program. Um, I appreciate just, the, just wanting to kind of think about that in a way to kind of incentivize affordability, so thank you very much. Um, I, I just wanted to better understand how that might work within this universe of kind of like, you know, the, these missing middle units. So so if I, if I wanted to add an affordable unit, would I be capped at, at these tiers? So like if I wanted to go, I wanted to build, I had a single unit and I wanted to build a triplex or whatever in tier one, like, and I utilize the, the, the density bonus program, I could maybe add like an additional unit or to, to exceed that cap? Or how does that work? Yeah, that's exactly right, Commissioner. That's what we anticipate. So these, these caps and these tiers uh, don't include the local bonus. So you, this would be, local bonus would be in addition to that. So in the example you gave, so if, you, you know, if you're in the four plus two tier, tier two, where you could do six units maximum. If you provided one of those units as a deed restricted affordable unit to be determined on you know, the length of affordability in that level, but we suggested here 60 to 80% EMI um, because that, that is a deeper level of 40 than the market can typically uh, support on its own. Then you would get an additional bonus, um, additional unit rather, and you could exceed the FAR if you needed to exceed the FAR to get that unit. So that would be an example. We're still working out the details and love to hear thoughts on specific triggers mechanisms, but the idea would be yes, you could exceed the FAR or um, unit caps um, uh, if you provide a deed restricted unit. Got it, thank you. Um, I, I guess I would just kind of, and I know we'll, we'll save comments for later. I, I would just add that as far as in, the, in that report to maybe consider possibilities of how we can include extreme low income um, restrictions into that density bonus program. I think in LA County, um, I believe that, again, this required coordination with the county and whatnot, but they were awarding tenant-based Section 8 vouchers um, for developers who are adding more affordable units and were willing to dedicate that. And so um, I think to to craft a program that provided some coordination of allowing tenant-based subsidies to to be a part of, of that, that development might help us even kind of target going even lower than kind of the, the, the 50, 60 to 80 AMI that we, we've been talking about here. Thank you with that, I yield.
Thank you, Commissioner Young. Next, we have uh, Commissioner Buckley. Thank you, Vice Chair. Um, sorry, I have to look above my glasses and below to read what I wrote. Um, great presentation and uh, great work in the report. Um, it really uh, shows uh, your team's professionalism and hard work, and so just uh, kudos. Um, I have a few questions. I tried to order them in a way that might make some sense, but I'm not sure I achieved that. I think my first question is for uh, Mr. Nguyen. Um, the, you mentioned getting feedback on sort of the, his, like his, the historic nature of things. I just wanted to see if you can characterize that a little bit more for me. I wasn't exactly sure sort of what you were saying in terms, I think that played into a little bit and how you all determined what types of units went in which areas. And so can, was that, was that feedback from like the preservation committee or was that just feedback from, uh, can, you know, folks out in the community? Can you characterize that a little bit? Or I mean, if that's not appropriately directed to you, feel, feel, feel free to pass that along. Um, so that was in response to the question from Commissioner Caden on why, um, if you look at the central city and the neighborhoods that are being highlighted, the R1B zones, um, why some of them are tier two and others are tier three. And so that was really um, uh, a decision kind of made. Um, and again, these are preliminary recommendations, right? And so with the, with the, the, the point of us you know, sharing um, these rec recommendations at this point is to get feedback and to um, get direction from the community, from the commission, from council to, you know, whether or not to tone it down or to, you know, turn up the volume. Um, and so that, you know, that's, that's sort of what we're looking for. Um, but in that case, we heard um, during the 2040 general plan land use um, process, uh, interacting with uh, members from the preservation community and from the preservation commission, there was a lot of concern about what a higher FAR, what a higher um, development intensity would mean for historic districts. Um, and especially if you look at the historic um, districts in the city, those, a lot of those are city-designated historic districts, and so they're not protected by state historic um, um, standards, I guess you could say. Um, when it comes to the state density bonus law. And so that was the other consideration, is that we want to keep the, the primary unit count under five so that we, we don't run into the situation where um, a historic property could um, you know, be, it, it would lose its historic character and integrity be, and, and the, us as a city wouldn't be able to um, sort of uh, provide guardrails to that. Rick I just want to add a little bit or background. Um, so, uh, right around 2020, the city developed historic district plans and context statements um, with a lot more guidance on the, the spatial considerations for historic districts, working with developers as well as preservationists to come to a, an agreement on how we can intensify do infill development in the central city while respecting that historic context of those districts. And so um, our concern is, and working with our preservation director, community members, of course, is that, yeah, if, if, if we start in those R1B zones, if we allow um, five units or more, that triggers the ability to utilize state density bonus um, incentives that essentially can override our standards. Um, and so we're, we're just concerned about that carefully crack, 
crafted compromise in those plans. Um, and so that's why we are limiting the, the unit cap there of the tier three to R1B uh, parcels outside of those district plan areas. Thank you, that's really helpful. So it sounds like it's more in terms of an actual historic preservation, not in terms of sort of like historic nature or like of the community. Correct. Okay. Um, so my second question is around the tier two um, spaces. And I, I think I live in one of the communities that would be tier two in Land Park. And I think about some of our sort of I'll call them boulevards, even though they're not. Over, I guess Riverside Boulevard's a boulevard, um, and and my street, Lampard Drive. Um, it is. Um, it seems to me like there's an opportunity for maybe um, higher um, densification around the corridors in those tier two communities. I wonder if any consideration was given to differentiating sort of like different spaces in the tier two zones for potential for uh, more density. Um, thank you for that feedback. We will um, consider that as part of our the feedback that we collect. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it as a comment. I was curious if y'all considered it, but that's that's fine as a comment. And then, um, oh, I, I, Matt, I thought your uh, response regarding um, the staff level review made a lot of sense as far as you know trying to implement this and it's a new a new product. Um, is there any consideration that's been given to maybe making staff level review temporary um, as the program kind of gets on its feet and then backing away from sort of some of the some of the concerns that uh, Commissioner Caden lifted up? Certainly open to that. I think that what we would recommend is once this uh, kicks off the implementation, we update our code that we reevaluate the program. We, we take a look. You know, we uh, come back and, and do a report back to you all and really see, run the numbers, see how it's doing, understand um, how it's been working over the last year or so, and then we can make refinements and tweaks. Um, you know, we can't for uh, see everything that we're going to run into until we're, you know, trying to think this all through and how this would play out. But I envision that there will be tweaks and revisions over time as, as this gets rolled out. So um, the review process is something we can certainly take a look at. Um, once we've and it's been implemented for some time. Thank you. Um, and then my, I think, last question is around um, the uh, displacement um, components uh, that I think potential displacement policies that would be included. Is that something, do you plan on having um, displacement policies as part of this program? Uh, absolutely, yes. So um, as I mentioned earlier, we have a displacement risk assessment that's underway. Um, we're wrapping it up um, and we're hoping to release that report um, by the end of November um, or early December. Um, and using the findings and the analysis of that report, um, we do want to um, inform the, the program and then how we flesh it out in terms of um, taking special considerations for communities that are maybe extra vulnerable to displacement pressure. Thank you, uh, that concludes my questions. Thank you, Commissioner Buckley. Uh, we'll move on to Commissioner Lemus. Thank you. Um, and thanks to the staff for the presentation. Um, it was very well, um, it was very informative. I also was looking at the report and noticed that there was a, a 
this is the second meeting, I think, as part of this phase approach. So I went back and watched the December 1st meeting um, when we were still on Zoom. Um, just to try to get some more context on this. And so I, I can definitely acknowledge all the, the hard work that the staff has put on to making this um, come to fruition and all the work that lies ahead. Um, I, I had a question um, just to try to get some better understanding in terms of um, duplexes. Um, from, from when I hear duplex, it's, um, or a triplex or, or fourplex, that is the one owner that owns all those units versus a, a halfplex, right, that owns half of, you know, that specific unit that may be attached to another unit. Um, because I hear this term of about affordability and um, increasing the number of units, but if it's a duplex, it's still one owner that has to purchase those two units, which are more expensive and a lower income household isn't, if they can't afford a, a single family home, they can't afford a duplex. So is, so correct me if I'm wrong if that, if in that understanding, um, but, but if not, um, is there consideration, because um, I know there was talk about 1,300 square foot lots. Is there a consideration about allowing these lots to be split as part of the developments uh, to the smaller parcels? so that folks can purchase an indi a, a specific part of that now divided um, property. Um, th yes, that was the intent of the recommendation to reduce the minimum lot size. And so, um, of course, it would be on a case-by-case -case basis on how the lot con is configured, on whether it's alley accessed or you know um, ingress and egress concerns. Um, but the idea is we would allow for lots to be split um, a lot at a lot smaller scale than we do now. Um, and, and, and to address your question about um, the duplex, triplex, and fourplex and whether or not they are rental units. Um, so traditionally, they have been rental units, and so. Um, when it comes to a homeowner who wants to add additional units as rental property or you know, passive income, um, that's uh, one way of looking at it, one way of, uh, of thinking about missing middle. Um, but there's also the opportunity for uh, condo units as well. Um, so if you, instead of dividing, uh, subdividing the land um, that the building is on, you could subdivide the airspace um, and create condo units. Um, and so those units would, of course, be more attainable um, than a traditional large single-family detached house. Perfect. Thank you for that. And um, and I do agree, and I do like the idea. I like the proposal. Um, I know that it's not. Um, it is more affordable housing, but not affordable housing as we know it is defined. Um, so I, I am I am aware of that, but I do acknowledge the need for middle housing um, at these more moderate or mid income middle income levels. Um, so I appreciate that. Um, I I. Uh, saw something uh, recently that there was a, a law passed, and maybe this might not apply as much, but um, it just passed allowing um, ADUs to be sold separately from a primary residence. Is that, um, has the city kind of thought about that, and is that any, is that going to impact you guys' decision moving forward about how these ADUs are being considered with the primary um, units. Thank you, Commissioner. 
Yeah, we are open to all ideas about how to allow for more homeownership opportunities. And, you know, part of our recommendations is going to be, you know, working for the, through the state to, to think about how we can modify, you know, the condo liability issue and, and some of the commercial code requirements for three units or more. In terms of the new legislation, um, my understanding is about 55 planning-related bills have been signed by the governor. He's got a couple more days. So we're, um, we do have staff that's going to provide a summary of all that. We're going we're gonna to dig into the details and, and figure out what we need to do in terms of our code and how this all relates. Um, so we will be back with more information on the various the bills and how we're going to incorporate it. Sure. Thank you. Appreciate that. And I do acknowledge that I think it's, it's probably even a smaller subset of houses that might qualify under this. And it has to be, like, recorded in tenancy and commons. And so I imagine a lot of folks might not might not fulfill the need that they are initially looking for when they build an AUD. But, um, but you know, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what the city's going to propose in light of that new legislation that was passed. Um, I know that, um, oh, um, I, I believe there's some cities or, or counties, because um, I, I don't know how the, um, the tax exemptions are, are allowed or approved, um, and whether it's, it's county that has that authority, but is that something that can be looked at when trying to encourage more development to allow some kind of a tax exemption, whether it's for an ADU or um, an additional unit on a parcel? Yes. Um I believe that is an option. I, I know that there's some details that has to be, I think, through a, C, a CBO or a nonprofit, and it has to be deed restricted. And there's some things you can do. And uh, I have heard of folks looking into that. I don't. We don't have direct experience working with that, but we'd be happy to look into it further. One thing I would note is, you know, we do have the zero dollar impact fee for affordable dwelling units. So, um, you know, these units, if they're deed restricted uh, per those requirements for 30 years or more, uh, they could be eligible for that. So they're there is some incentives, financial incentives for, for deed restricting as well. Okay, thank you. And, and that, that kind of tied into my, my last question about, um, there was a reference to a San Diego approach for um, like a, some kind of an incentive, right? I, I think there was a reference to like a market rate unit and an affordable unit. Was the incentive was that, um, that they were allowed to exceed the maximum levels that can uh, maximum number of units that can be built there or were or were the incentives like financial incentives like you just mentioned where they reduced the impact fees and do, do we know what the city's kind of considering in terms of offering some kind of incentive um i would need to look more in, into the details of the program but from from my basic understanding of it is that they allow um, additional ADUs, basically unlimited numbers of ADUs up to the building envelope um, that is prescribed by their zoning code and general plan. So that includes floor area ratio, height limit, setbacks, lot coverage. So all those standards apply. Um, and they can fill it all the way to the maximum. And it doesn't matter how many units they provide if they use this program and provide income-restricted units. So that's that was their approach. Okay. Perfect. Thank you for that. And I lied. I have one last question. Um, and I think this was from the last meeting in December. Um, I can't remember exactly, but um, when we're talking about um, displacement, um, anti-displacement um, strategies, I believe there was a reference to just cause evictions um, and trying to look at um, ways to verify that the homeowners that claim they're going to do 
improvements are actually doing them and not um, using that as an excuse to um, move families outside of the unit. So I don't know if, um, I just I wanted to bring that back up to light, uh, you know, as part of the consideration for these anti-displacement um, strategies. I'll just note generally that, you know, we have the tenant protection program in place citywide and as part of one of our housing element programs, uh, we are tasked with uh, evaluating that until 2024 will be the year we'll be taking a look at that prior to sunsetting. So there will be robust discussion, I'm sure, around uh, that program, way to, to continue it, how to maybe uh, refine it uh, going forward. Uh, and then we also have the rental housing inspection program um, for all rental units where, you're, you know, that, and that's really more on health and uh, safety of the unit, making sure that it, it uh, up to all the building code standards so that those two are in place now. Great. Thank you. That's all my questions, and I yield my time. Thank you, Commissioner Lamas. Uh, next, we have Commissioner Young. Thank you. Uh, I forgot to ask this question, but for the missing middle housing projects that, that have more intense density, um, was there any consideration of, of allowing for some sort of commercial mixed use? Type of typology. So we do allow for that by right in, in many of our zones citywide, and and so I think maybe it will be helpful going forward to show a map of the other zones, residential zones, or other zones that allow residential by right. And so majority of our commercial corridors, for example, are C two and allow um, higher intensity multi-unit and mixed use by right. And you'll see a lot of that. Um, and so a lot of our zones do that. We have, we have other higher intensity residential zones like R3 and R4. Uh, and so those are around the city in different areas. Um, but what we're, what we're talking about here, you know, predominantly um, lower intensity, single family or single unit and duplex dwellings um, currently. However, we do allow um, some neighborhood serving businesses by right in these areas. Our neighborhood designation and general plan lists um, those types of neighborhood serving amenities that would be allowed and we do have home occupation um, you know permits for certain types of home businesses and things like that thank you thank you commissioner young and next we have commissioner thompson thank you for um seriously an intense well graphicked presentation i appreciate it a lot the graphics are fantastic um, I did have a couple questions. First is a general one, and it's not necessarily city involved, but it's within the code regulations for rental units and or just housing units in general. Building code kicks in at three to four, which can be an impediment for people to build multi-unit housing. Is this an additional conversation that we're trying to have since we did get to live in Sacramento? Um, with our code people to try and work that into this overall California issue? Yeah, yes, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, commercial has been defined in, in our California Building Standards Code as three dwelling units or more. Um, and, I, you know, I think that 
that's something that we uh, certainly want the state to take a closer look at. And, and we're looking at our own regulations where we have the ability to do, but many of these things are in the, the California Building Code. Uh, and so, yeah, we would be, you know, I think that it's something worth to, uh, worth a discussion about in terms of do the commercial building code requirements really need to kick in for three units or four units. And we know that that is an impediment. It does uh, additional costs and processes for these, these triplexes and fourplexes. And so, as those still are in place, you may see and there's been, you know, ADUs don't have those same barriers. And so there is, um, I think there, it's a lower, lower barrier um, process to getting more units. And there's less impact fees and the like. So there's definitely work to be done as we and other cities in the state um, continue to do more of this. And I think that we can continue to push the state uh, to reconsider that. And I know there's been some of those discussions at the state level for the next uh, building code cycle. So we, we, you know, if folks are interested in advocating to the state on that, that'd be something that we would certainly encourage. Wonderful, thank you. And that leads me to my next one, which I think actually goes with this slide. Um, talking about ownership, so Missing Middle, I know, is access to housing, but it's also really focused on home ownership for people who are priced out of the market the way it is currently. And uh, Commissioner Lamas, my first entry into home ownership actually happened with a duplex uh, and is a really good way to do it because your payment is supplemented by your rental. So um, it actually, I built equity pretty quick. And with that, and along with the ability to do three and four, and I hear a lot of incentivizings um, with developers to come and build these things. And we're working on providing enough incentives to even get them interested to join the market in a way that would make a substantial. But in the end, if a developer is doing it, then it is still looking at home ownership by people who need to own it. So if we were going to step outside of that, how are we incentivizing individual homeowners to build these? Or how can we incentivize? Have we explored, I know you guys talked about the, the, the um, rent to own, which absolutely any, any pathway would be good, but are there additional incentives that instead of looking at developers to take on this component to really actually focus more on the individual buyers to start supplementing um, through fees or through reduce, whatever it would be, just as a question. We have definitely leaned into that um, in terms of accessory dwelling units and ADUs, you know, and the state has done so as well when there's no no impact fees for ADUs of under 750 square feet. And then as a city, you know, we've released our permit-ready ADU plans. So that was a big barrier for, for property owners to understand how to go through the process, to hire an architect or a designer. Is it compliant with the building code? And so our permit-ready plans are, is compliant with our, our planning uh, and development code as well as the, the building code. And we have, I believe, the, my last check was eight uh, permit ready ADU plans going through the building process, so that's exciting. We would love to see more. Um, in terms of incentivizing property owners for doing um, missing middle housing beyond ADUs, certainly open to ideas um, about how we could, uh, could do that. Wonderful. I, I, I agree. The ADU piece has been fantastic to see come through, and I've seen a lot of movement in it, but I also think that continuing to build on what you already have is not necessarily increasing the access out there. Um, and I know just a lot of homeowners who would be interested in doing that have no idea how to take that on. And I do think that that's something that 
potentially we can build into this plan even just to start the pathway. I have one more question, I'm so sorry. Uh, the house scaled uh, required, <laughs> I'm getting smiles. The house scaled component, um, which I liked that it was put in there as a statement. Um, it, it is a bit ambiguous. I'm assuming it's gonna come with some sort of a checklist or something, but that backed with um, being a, an individual review puts a lot of things up to subjectivity. And I'm gonna bring this right back to individual homeowners who are trying to go through this process has already built in a stop. Um, so is there a, a, a clear requirement for what that house scaled means and is it going to be because the one comment I do have is these images are beautiful and fantastic but I don't know if they necessarily reflect what you guys are looking at doing this is a large-scale home um, with multiple pieces is it two two unit three unit four uh, add that in there <laughs> just so um, but the other components within this what that could look like can vary massively. And uh, just to help homeowners or whoever's trying to go through this process to feel successful and also still appease the neighborhoods who are bringing this in, I think it needs some clarity. Yeah. So in terms of our standards, we are only augmenting or adjusting existing development standards. So we're not putting in any additional constraints, so to speak, or additional layers of regulation. So the things that you see highlighted in this graphic are the tweaks, essentially, that are needed to existing standards within these zones just to enable missing middle. So to give you an example, what you see in that kind of darker red color, which is almost like a line which is running along the pitch of the roof, so that is the amount by which the existing bulk control standard would need to be adjusted to fit this within the existing bulk control envelope, like as we are recommending, compared to a single family or a duplex unit. So in a way, this is just the, the delta of what needs mm -hmm. to happen, just to enable these types. So by house scale, again, like I was smiling because often we need to try and uh, defend ourselves on that. Uh, again, nothing against block scale buildings, but these can be small or large house scale buildings, but the intent is that it looks and feels like a house. In other words, these smaller kind of details, such as entrances which are directly off the sidewalk and not through uh, say a corridor, you know, it just, it's a small defining feature, but it just uh, puts that into the house scale category. So, um, and any further questions, I'll be happy to answer. On Thank that. you. I'm done. Thank you, Commissioner Thompson. Uh, next we are here from Commissioner Andrade. Thank you. Um, I appreciate all the research and outreach and everything that you've done to put this together at the point it's pointing uh, everything in your research is pointing to that this is a good thing for Sacramento. But was there any opposition in your outreach? And if there was, what was the opposition and how are you addressing that opposition? Yeah, thank you for the question, Commissioner. Um, so I have to reflect back because, you know, we're at a different time uh, at, at the beginning of COVID. You know, we, this, we've been talking about this now since uh, beginning of 2021 when we introduced the recommended key strategies for the general plan. And one of those key strategies was to allow a greater array of housing types citywide. And so we, we got the approval from council to pursue that. 
and then we were fortunate enough to get a grant from the state administered by SACOG uh, to you know, initiate the study. I would say yes, the initial reaction, um, there was a lot of opposition and um, spent a good year and a half um, meeting with uh, community members and, and neighborhood associations, organizations, many, many, many Zoom meetings during COVID um, to really talk through the what and the why and, and the how. And so what you see today is really a result of three years of conversations about really trying to find that sweet spot of, of leaning in on housing choice and housing affordability and attainability uh, more, um, and being the first in the state to, to do this and to come out with this level of program. Um, but we, you know, some of the major concerns and questions and uh, that we heard are really encapsulated in those three questions. Um, there's a lot of, there was a lot of concern initially about privacy, uh, number of cars, number of trash bins, uh, number of individuals living next to me. Um, what about our trees or the city of trees? What about open space? Uh, how high are these buildings gonna look like? And I think there was just a lot of initial hesitation because this is something new for folks. But since then, I, I, there's been a lot of conversations and we have been very intentional about trying to address those questions um, from the small to the trash bins to the larger of, you know, what does it mean to have six units next to me when I currently have one? Um, so yeah, so I think that, you know, this is where we landed. Uh, and again, it's a preliminary, but I, I, I think it is, is a thoughtful way that we can implement this and to meet the intent of what we're trying to do with missing middle housing. Thank you for that. My follow-up to that is, are there any unintended consequences? Let's say, you know, the average design life of building materials is about 30 years. So, you know, 30 years from now when two people are living in a duplex, one owns each side, you know, who's paying for the roof or who's paying for the new paint job, you know? You know, what are these, what are the unintended consequences 30, 40, 50 years down the road? Are we gonna look back and say, was this a good idea? Maybe, you know, what, are there any unintended consequences? And how are we addressing those? Um, I think as, uh, similar to most things that are, you know, new and um, it's a, a significant change in the way we're, you know, a significant change from the status quo, let's just put it that way. Sure. Um, there, there, are, there will be, um, you know, things that could be unforeseen um, as, um, things including um, displacement pressure, which is something that we're trying really hard to address through our analysis and our mapping and um, anti-displacement measures that we're including in the missing middle program. That's one example. Um, and in, in, I think to address your concern about um, the maintenance of these buildings, um, you know, the, a lot of the existing fourplexes um, and bungalow courts and triplexes in today's neighborhoods, um, especially the older neighborhoods, they, um, they usually are owned by one property owner or it could be co-owned. Um, and I think people figure out how to maintain their properties. Um, and in, this, in the case of condos, um, you know, where you own the airspace, typically there is a, an HOA, for instance. Um, and you know, as, as this become more commonplace, um, you know, we're being optimistic, if it does become more commonplace, um, then there will, of course, uh, be innovations from the market and from the private sector to really address some of these issues. And so, you know, as a city, as, as a public sector, we, we open up the rules and we think about how, what we can allow and what we can protect and what we should think about. 
Um, but you know, and it has an it has an impact on the private sector, on the on the market. And so um, we 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 do look to the market to address some of those issues and concerns um, as as this becomes more commonplace. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Commissioner Andrade. Next, we'll hear from Commissioner Zhang. Hi, thank you. Okay, so that was actually my question was regarding um, kind of like a shared um, responsibility for when we're looking at like the cottage court homes or like you had mentioned earlier, condo style homes where you own the airspace. But it's 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 something to kind of consider or to kind of question who was responsible for that shared space, you know, like the green space. Um, and um, Mr. Wen, you had mentioned that currently it's common to find that there's a single owner, but for, if the idea is to create um, affordability, affordable units so that they can be individually owned, um, then there has to be like a division of responsibility too. So I'm just wondering if we're kind of depending on um, private current landowners or current homeowners to kind of develop those pieces, um, if there's any kind of guidance on how to develop like guidelines or, or CCNRs or, or whatever it is, you know, um, whether it's an association, um, th there's just a lot that comes into play with that. And I'm just wondering like if there's any um, resources that would be made available to just a regular homeowner who wants to develop the land that they already own uh, when it comes to things like that. Yeah, thank you for the question and comments. And yeah, I mean, we, in terms of, as we roll out and implement this, I'm, I can foresee a toolkit or some guidance. We have that now with an ADU resource toolkit that walks folks through step one all the way through step eight. I don't know, there might be, I don't know how many steps there are, I just made that up, but eight seems right. So all eight steps um, in, in terms of including how do you, if you're renting it out, like what is the best practices for, for managing property, um, for working with the tenants? We even have those types of resources and things. So I could foresee you know, a similar toolkit or building on that for missing middle housing types as well. Thank you, I yield. Okay, um, seeing no additional uh, questions from commissioners, I would like to open up for public comment. Clerk, are there any members of the public who wish to speak on this item? Thank you, Vice Chair. We have four speakers that would like to speak on this item. Our first speaker will be David. Hi. Um, I don't have anything prepared, really, um, but I am here because I am, uh, I think, part of the middle class and housing is extremely difficult. Um, I work uh, a lot of jobs, um, almost around the clock. And um, I used to be in a homeowner in Sacramento uh, in the um, Med Center neighborhood over north of Oak Park. Um, now I'm a renter in Midtown. And uh, there was just a rent increase uh, at my apartment. And uh, my rent is an obscene, uh, $2,525. Um, so I don't know um, how I can be helpful uh, in, in what I can say uh, without prepared remarks, but I did want to at least provide a, a real example of a real person struggling with housing in Sacramento, if anyone had any questions for an actual real person. I mean, you're all real people, of course, but you know what I mean. Uh, uh, someone that this would benefit. And if not, that's okay. I just want to say thank you to you guys for considering this and 
presenting this. So, okay, cool, thanks. Thank you for your comments. Typically this portion of the agenda is just to receive comments from the public and members will not respond or ask questions. Thank you. Our next speaker will be Ansel. Good evening, Vice Chair Wallace and Commissioners. My name is Ansel Lundberg. I am a District 7 resident in Curtis Park and uh, a board member of House Sacramento. We are the Yes in My Backyard organization here in Sacramento. Um, I just want to start off by saying how Sacramento, we love missing middle housing. We've been kind of with everybody on the journey since we started talking about this in the development of the general plan a couple years ago. Um, so excited to see kind of getting down to nuts and bolts as far as what that might look like in Sacramento. So um, I think we have some concerns with the study uh, and the, some of the preliminary recommendations, but it's first stages. So this is the place to talk about that. We also have uh, some things that we really support. Um, I'll just say we are, we got our members doing the virtual workshop, which closes in a couple weeks, so you'll hear from us there as well. Um, we did submit a lengthy comment letter to you all through the e-comment as well. So, um, but I'll just kind of sum up, I guess, to sum up the comments, there is, um, it is headed in the right direction. Missing middle is the right way to go but there, there are too many rules and too many potential bottlenecks in the proposed recommendation. That's, that's our thought. Um, there are kind of too many ways that things could go wrong, whether it's due to market forces, not um, kind of matching up with the rules. Um, and it doesn't look the same, you know, in some ways as what we've seen in the general plan land use map discussions. Um, I think if we really want to end our housing shortage and reduce vehicle miles traveled, um, put a dent in homelessness, we have to build these missing middle housing product types. And I, I fear that if the city is too prescriptive about the limits on these types, then we could end up with no benefit or little benefit. Um, so that's the unit caps. We do not support unit caps at all. Um, we really support that form-based code only limiting floor area ratio. Um, we're also very concerned about discretionary review, although there was some clarification on that tonight, so thank you. Um, anything that risks legal uh, limbo or CEQA triggers, we're very concerned about that. So I know the city kind of has that dialed in on the ministerial approval, so if this matches up with that, that's fine. Um, but the good things, reduce minimum lot sizes, we would favor going to zero. Um, bulk control envelope, I did not know that was a thing, but we should, liberalize that. Uh, building code reforms, excellent. The driveway stuff is good. Uh, reducing front setbacks, those are useless. Um, so those are my comments. Thank you so much. Good job, staff. Appreciate you guys, and uh, thank you. Thank you for your comment. Our next comment, our next speaker will be Ben.
Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you, Vice Chair Wallace. Uh, commissioners, my name is Ben Raderstorff. I am the Vice President of House Sacramento. And I'm a homeowner here in District 4. Um, I'm here, I, I want to speak directly to this sort of idea of, of how careful we need to be, how cautious, whether or not we, you know, we need to be sort of walking back some of the goals in the general plan update or, or generally sort of taking it incrementally. Like, God, God forbid we accidentally end up building too much housing. But, but really, I mean, the, the, the point here is that the city has been publicly, loudly trumpeting for years now, especially on the unit caps, the desire to, to get rid of unit density-based zoning and move to a form-based code. And you all have been so celebrated for that, right? In the press, from the voters, across the state. People are really excited that we are doing this. And yeah, there may be a handful of very loud voices that are worried about privacy or setbacks or the character of their neighborhoods. But the reality is we live in a county where 10,000 people are sleeping on the street tonight and tens of thousands more cannot find affordable housing, cannot find housing that fits within their budget. We need to be prioritizing them and not the aesthetic concerns of a handful of people in our communities. Um, the same is true, so obviously this is so true on unit caps. Unit caps don't make sense if we are switching to a form-based code. FAR is supposed to start regulating that. If we keep unit, unit, uh, if we keep unit caps and move to FAR, we're just layering more rules on top. Um, and the same thing's true on ministerial approval process. You know, I, I, I appreciate that it sounds like this is not as, as sort of scary of a proposal as it initially sounds like, but I still, you know, my question is why we need to be introducing new hurdles to, to this type of housing in general. The ministerial process works so well for housing in Sacramento. You know, I, I know that I'm very glad that we don't have to come in here and have a food fight every Thursday night every time somebody wants to build apartments. None of our counterparts in San Francisco or LA have that same <laughs> privilege. Uh, it's really nice that we don't have to fight around over individual projects in, in Sacramento. I think that's something we should hold on to, including for missing middle projects. Um, and then, yeah, at the end of the day, this is a pro-housing city. You know, we had, uh, when the general plan update, which again, loudly proposes getting rid of unit caps, when that went to council, we had over two hours of speakers coming in to talk about that. We had 32 different people say, this is great, but please find a way to do more. And not a single person said, I am uncomfortable with this. And the same was true on the dais too. Every council member who spoke about the general plan in the last meeting said, this is great, but please find a way to do more housing in high opportunity and transit rich neighborhoods. My honest assessment is that these recommendations, they're very careful, they're very considered, but they do not answer that call. And we need to find a way to follow council's clear instruction here. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Our last speaker will be Connor. Hello everyone, my name is uh, Connor Finney. I am a renter and D4 resident. Um, just want to start off, uh, thank uh, the Planning Commission for being here. This is, you know, a difficult process, so, you know, definitely appreciate that, and I especially want to thank staff. Um, you know, this isn't easy, but if it was, it, you know, would have already happened. So I uh, just want to start off just by stating my utmost uh, respect for, for you in, in this process. But I think, unfortunately, after reading the draft recommendations, uh, I walked away very disappointed. Um, I really felt like this flew in the face of the spirit of the general plan update. I felt like we really walked back 
on our climate goals and our fair housing goals in some really significant ways. Um, just, I think, looking at this from a broad view, especially when we're looking at the tier system, especially when we're looking at uh, you know, exempting uh, much of uh, the you know, central neighborhoods uh, for historic preservation purposes. I think if you look from a bird's eye view and see who we're exempting from significant zoning changes, this really mirrors redlining maps uh, historically. Um, I, I find that uh, quite unfortunate. I think that we really should make a strong commitment to open up our higher resource neighborhoods uh, to working families. Um, you know, I think one thing that I am always thinking about is, uh, you know, me and my partner are talking, you know, uh, more seriously uh, about marriage and children, and the idea of doing that without owning a home is quite scary. And so when I hear talk of worrying about aesthetic concerns, when I hear concerns about uh, setbacks and unit caps and neighborhood character, I just kind of hear, well, we're really concerned uh, about the aesthetic preferences of wealthy retirees and not working families. And I, I, I find that very distasteful. Um, I think we should throw out the unit caps completely but in the event that we are committing to unit caps, we should at least move uh, tier, two, tier two into tier three. Um, we should just commit to fair housing. We should commit to affordable housing for families to live in our highest resource residential neighborhoods. Uh, thank you so much, uh, everyone. Thank you for your comments. Chair, I'm sorry, Vice Chair, there are no other speakers. Thank you, Clerk. Uh, I'm going to bring it back to the dais for just a second. Um, I'm going to make a couple of comments, and then if other folks want to speak, then they're, they're free to. Uh, I wanted to acknowledge the long engagement effort, both of House Sacramento and of the staff. Um, I think we are in a place where we're having a conversation that when I moved here 22 years ago, we were talking about the blueprint, and we had like three scenarios of the SACOG blueprint. And one was like, we're not gonna grow. <laughs> and then one was like, we're gonna get really dense. And then there was this like middle ground scenario. And like, this is like what the SES and the RTP are now, right? But there was so much opposition in my land use policy class at Sac State. My professor was like, the only way you're ever gonna get this to happen is to what, what I now recognize is to build more missing middle housing. She said, you're gonna to have to put in more duplexes and triplexes and ADUs, or mother-in-law units, as they called them back then, and that will get people more familiar. Like people, it's not just, um, this isn't just about like a rapid radical transformation. It's also sort of like acknowledging that people have a sense of place and they want to maintain that sense of place. And it's not necessarily only wealthy people who are doing that because we hear people come in here and complain about new developments who aren't rich all the time. Um, and so I think this, uh, I want to appreciate that the staff is trying to achieve a balance here. Um, but I really, and I, and even, even in some of their caution, they are really truly thinking through the impacts of displacement or displacement pressure um, that are the unintended consequences that I think Commissioner Andrade was kind of trying to allude to also. Um, and so 
I just want to say good job, and I want to remind everybody this is early days, and we can keep pushing. Um, but overall, I think this is a really strong body of work, and I really look forward to seeing um, what we get at the next iteration, because I know that council is going to have a run at this, and I'm sure they're going to have some um, some significant requests. Um, and so with that, this is receiving file. So if there's additional commissioner comments, I'm opening it up to you guys now. <laughs> commissioner Thompson. There we go. Buttons. Um, is it okay to address the commenters? I just wanted to make a quick comment um, coming from an architect's perspective on aesthetic discussions, which I completely agree with you. But there's another level that aesthetics plays in that's deeper, where home ownership is not just being able to have a place that's your own, but it's also being able to have that generational wealth that you can pass to your children, or at least sell and have the ability to move forward and up. It's a at least upward movement. That's where aesthetics do end up playing a role and making sure that the overall aesthetics of our entire city, as well as our individual neighborhoods, maintain some sort of semblance that guarantees that when you and yours together have your baby and in 20 years they move out and you're like, we're going to wherever. You can sell your house at a profit because everybody still wants to live in Sacramento. So just to add another layer on it. Thank you. Thanks, Commissioner Thompson. Uh, Commissioner Caden. Thank you, Chair. So as I was kind of reading through the full 190-page attainability and livability report, um, I, I found myself really kind of struggling with some of the underlying justifications and, and language that ultimately made its way to inform the recommendations. And it's, it's extremely well written. Um, I would agree with other commissioners that the graphics are fantastic. It's very pretty. But there's this huge component that, that for me feels like status quo protection over data-driven and, and policy-driven decision-making. There's just, there's just a lot of subjective terms in there, like appropriateness, respecting scale, compatibility, um, you know, more in harmony, which, by the way, would very recommend not using that term. That's, that's a term that was in a lot of redlining maps around racial harmony and literally talking about racial segregation, so let's, let's not use that term. Um, but I just don't think that it's our job to make subjective judgment about what's appropriate and what's compatible and, and what is going to ruffle the least feathers. I, I think it's our job to create zoning rules that solve for policy goals. And to me, the policy goals here, we have climate rights, we have equity, we have affordability, and we have making sure that it's feasible to build. But that's kind of how I see it. And when I see statements like a eight-unit project is, is appropriate in Boulevard Park, um, but it's not appropriate in Poverty Ridge, or it's not appropriate uh, directly across the street from a light rail station in East Sacramento, 
the reason can't be this, you know, subjective statement um, about existing context that was, by the way, created by our historically exclusionary land use rules that have been in place for like 100 years. Um, so, you know, and that's what we're talking about changing, right? So we need to base it off what makes sense from, again, a climate, an equity, an affordability, a feasibility standpoint. And, and when you look at it from that lens, some of these tier two neighborhoods that are, that are high opportunity, right, they've managed to use um, historically zoning rules to, to exclude denser housing types um, for a long time. They're within walking distance of transit, right? They're some of the lowest VMT parts of the region. Like, these are exactly the types of places that we need to be looking at denser housing types and, and not arbitrarily capping projects at six units. Um, so I know this was mentioned during the presentation, right? So I, we had a lot of feedback um, from the public, from the commission, from, from city council um, during the general plan process to, to look at um, higher floor area ratios, right? That was like a huge like discussion over the course of hours uh, here, both in the council uh, and here, um, looking at higher floor area ratios near transit in high opportunity neighborhoods. And I think, you know, if we elect to go there, which I think we should, um, you know, if we're gonna increase that, it doesn't make sense, and it actually, to me, it actually could be actively harmful to keep the same unit cap recommendations um, in those areas, because you know, what that's doing is you're allowing for more floor area ratio, but the same number of units, right? So you're just basically trying to incentivize larger units there, which I think, you know, to the point of the sliding scale, that's not the idea. So the only way that that recommendation makes sense to me is to lift those unit caps. Um, and, and I would add that it was, it was pretty clear from that policy recommendation and that, and that set of discussions, um, and maybe I'll just speak for myself, but I, I would guess it's the case for others that were advocating for that, um, that the point of increasing FAR was to increase the amount of housing, right? It's not because we wanted bigger buildings. Um, it's because we wanted more housing. And so I, again, I would just encourage us if we are considering those higher than 1.0 FAR um, uh, changes as a part of the general plan that you you know, in tandem up the unit caps in those areas. Um, and then I just, I wanted to say, I was kind of like reflecting a little bit on how, you know, the politics, I guess, of, of housing has just shifted um, to me in a positive direction recently. I think a few years ago, anything that touched the sanctity of a single family neighborhood, you know, would have been a third rail. Um, and then you fast forward a few years, right? You have SB9, you have ADU law, um, effectively allowing four units on every parcel in California, including Sacramento. You have um, statewide uh, missing middle reform that goes a little bit further than that in, in Oregon um, and in Montana. You have cities across the nation that are taking this on themselves, right? You have places like Vancouver that just um, changed zoning to allow between six and eight units, depending on lot size, um, across their whole city. You have um, Bozeman, Montana, allowing eight units per parcel. Bozeman, Montana, population 55,000 people, allows eight units per lot on every, every lot in, in that city. So, you know, I have no doubt, I guess, that the, when we started this missing middle study, that the recommendations to allow, you know, four and, and maybe six units um, per parcel felt like it was on the cutting edge. But to me, that's, that's just not the case anymore. Um, we're talking about recommendations for what we should do to allow for more housing across the city. That was the idea. And it's three quarters of the city. And what I'm seeing is that the crux of the recommendations is that we're not really gonna change how much housing we're allowing in 60% of that land, 
right? The tier one doesn't change how much housing is allowed, really, to me. And in 39%, we're, we're looking at modest increases of like, eh, we allow four, maybe let's go to six. And then in 1% of the city or less, we're looking at maybe we'll go from four to eight. Um, so, you know, I, th there's a lot to like uh, in, in the study for sure, and, you know, I, there's a lot to like in our general plan. Um, but I, to me, the, the unit cap proposal is just not something that I can support in its current form. Um, I think we need to be thinking bigger. You know, we, we talked, I think, before about how we want to be a national model for how we, you know, plan for and improve housing. Um, and I just don't think that the unit cap proposal is actually kind of living up to that, that standard. So I'm going to go through, I have a, a list of kind of really explicit recommendations here. I want to go through point at a time. Um, you know, at a high level, I, I think I agree um, with the notion that I don't think the unit cap is necessary. Um, I think we're already being really prescriptive uh, about the size and the look of buildings and the aesthetics, right? Um, we're, we're looking at stuff through a form-based, right? We're looking at FER, FAR, height, setbacks, full control, design standards, driveways. Like, we're, you know, there's, there's a rule for everything. And to me, that's like... That's sufficient, you know, that's plenty. We don't need to restrict the number of units in the building too, just to artificially reduce the unit count, when all that's accomplishing is making the project more affordable. That was, the, that was what was shown in the analysis. Um, if, we do have more, if we do have to go down this CAPS route, I'm, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with, like from a fair housing perspective, I guess, with not allowing any more housing than we currently do in those like high opportunity tier one um, neighborhoods. That said, you know, the feasibility analysis, which is really helpful again, suggests it's gonna be pretty difficult to, to actually get these projects to pencil in, in those neighborhoods, um, you know, and they are further away from transit and jobs. So I think I'm like a little bit less focused on upping the caps in those areas than the tier two and the tier three areas. Um, but I would like to see in those two areas, the caps come up at least by um, two units each. So you can build a sixplex plus two ADUs in tier two, and then that eightplex plus two ADUs in tier three. Um, I'd like to see tier three apply to more than just 0.26% of residential land. Um, I, I think at the very least that could be the entire central city. To me, the presence of a historic district is not a good policy reason to, to not allow for the same thing that you would allow in Boulevard Park. Um, I also strongly feel like we shouldn't be instituting a more discretionary approval process um, than we already have for, for most other infill multifamily. I, get, I, I definitely hear that it's a little bit more on the staff side than it sounded like from the, from the actual recommendation sheet, so that's good to hear. But it does seem to me that this is like, these are the types of projects that could be particularly susceptible to NIMBYism, like even maybe more so. So I, I think it's almost more important to make sure that it's a, a by-right objective process that is not subject to, you know, um, maybe a angry neighbor who's a lawyer. Um, and then I, I support the concept of the sliding scale FAR proposal. I, I totally um, get the, the intent there. I do think we're overcomplicating it a little bit. I think the general idea is we're trying to tip the scales towards more units, right? We're, we're trying to... Uh, you know, essentially reduce the likelihood that you see redevelopment of a single unit as opposed to more units. I don't think we need to ratchet down the FAR once we get into that three or four unit range. And I would actually strongly recommend that we don't reduce the FAR below the general plan when the projects are trying to max out the units, because that's the whole point of the sliding scale. 
is to, to make sure that we're encouraging the most units. So um, I would also recommend that we institute, um, I think we talked a little bit about this on the, on the like small lot development. I think we should have a lot size at which that sliding scale doesn't apply so that we're not like accidentally um, restricting one unit small lot development with like a requirement that the unit can't be more than 500 square feet. I don't think that's ever gonna get built. Um, so maybe the sliding scale applies to lots that are like over 3,000 square feet. That's pretty arbitrary, but just, you know, something like that. Um, I'm a big supporter of the, the conceptual local bonus program um, that was talked about. That San Diego program has been tremendously successful. It's like remarkable, actually, how successful that's been um, with a lot of studies on that. I think, you know, sometimes there's a tendency to like see a successful program and to be like, okay, let's let's like tweak it to make it you know work for our city. I would encourage us to just it really works. Let's just copy the program. We don't need to like yeah we don't need to change it. It looks really good. It's building a lot of moderate income units. I you know I, I understand the the like the desire to um, have the bonus units just be in the sixty to eighty percent range, um, and I understand you know every, we, we do want you know higher depths of affordability. That's great. Um, I know the San Diego program, part of what makes it successful is that they actually allow for the 80 to 120% range, I understand. Um, so, you know, maybe we're not doing the 120%, you know, it's a lot more expensive to do everything in San Diego than it is here, so maybe it's a little bit less than 120, but if maybe we can look at a little bit higher than 80 just to try to, you know, again, um, uh, pull out the, the good parts of that program that, that really does work. So if we can get to like 90, I don't know, I don't know what the number is, but just wanted to throw that out there. Um, those are all my comments. Thank you. Thanks, Commissioner. Uh, next, we have Commissioner Buckley. Thank you, Vice Chair. Um, again, uh, staff, wonderful job. Really appreciate it. And I also want to express appreciation for the people who came out from public to, to speak on this issue. Um, it's clear you dove deep and um, really worked hard to understand the issues and um, Gave great feedback, so I really appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what uh, Commissioner Caden offered. Um, I think um, I would like to learn more about how um, this proposal goes past uh, state law, um, past um, uh, past the status quo. Um, and uh, some of that, I'm sure, is my ignorance, um, but also, too, I think it'd be helpful for everyone to understand sort of like what's the difference between um, what, what we're doing now, what state law um, allows us to do, and how Sacramento has pushed the needle in all the ways that I know we're all committed to. Um, on, um, you know, on the issue of I would like to see the report differentiate more and our discussions about this differentiate more between neighborhood character and um, historic considerations. Um, you know, I live in Lamb Park. Um, you know, neighbor, as, as Commissioner Caden laid out a bit, I mean, neighborhood character, um, it, there's a long history as to how the neighborhood uh, character of Lamb Park got established, and part of it is the the, uh, the racially restrict, restrictive covenant that's actually in my deed. So I, I think we have to figure out a way to um, balance what we know really is part of the conversation that we're having. And I, I think even in the report, there's a part where we 
discuss equity considerations and, and go through the past discriminatory practices that sort of led us to where we are today. And I don't think we can talk about protecting neighborhood character without talking about that at the same time. So I would just encourage you to sort of explore that some more. Um, Oh, I wanted to say thank you for the, I think the front setback thing as we were thinking about doing uh, smart things to add additions to our home and do ADUs, running up to that front setback, not being able to go past our neighbors was, felt like a really dumb rule. Um, we have a giant uh, amount of space front setbacks in, in my neighborhood and there's a ton of opportunity to just be squandered there. So thank you for that. Um, I think I, I agree with uh, Commissioner Thompson that the ambiguity and language like, uh, and I think you said a different thing, but I think you're referring to the human scale um, piece. Um, I, I, it would be great to see that sort of like demonstrated as to what that actually means so that we can understand better sort of the values that we're trying to, to lift up by um, having our um, program match up with that particular idea. Um, On displacement risks, um, I, I'm glad you all are doing the displacement risk analysis. Um, I encourage you to utilize that to uh, pull out the strongest um, displacement strategies that you can. Um, I, I see nods to different strategies in the report um, that have been implemented um, in similar situations across the state. Um, but I, I I think that you should consider targeting those um, displacement strategies to places um, that we know are at risk of displacement. I, I don't, I'm, I'm sure, um, you know, things like renter protections are important across the city, um, but I wonder if some of the displacement protections would be um, better implemented in a place like Oak Park rather than Land Park. Um, and I think that is all I had. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Buckley. Next we'll hear from Commissioner Zhang. Thank you, Vice Chair. Um, okay, so um, I kind of wanted to touch um, back on what Commissioner um, Andrade had um, questioned earlier regarding opposition. And thank you, Matt. I know you, you had mentioned that it's been like a three-year process trying to get people on board. And I think a lot of that comes with comes from um, being afraid of change. And I think that a lot of times when, when you guys are doing the workshops, the people who probably need to be there aren't the ones who are coming. Um, so I, if there's a way that we can kind of reach um, the greater um, public, um, I don't know if that's done through advertising or some kind of media, um, because I think it's great. I think the, 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 what's being proposed is, is, is wonderful. You know, I've questioned a lot of times why, why all the duplexes are kind of um, grouped in specific neighborhoods and not as evenly dispersed, um, especially in some of the newer communities built 2000s and newer. Uh, like, we don't really see that. Um, so I do appreciate, and I'm really excited for um, this variety of housing types, um, the, 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 the potential for that to become more widespread. Um, but I think that's, that's kind of a really important piece is just to kind of um, maybe let people know, hey, this is coming. This is the direction of the city that the city is taking. And as, as evident um, in our discussion today, there's a lot of kinks to be worked out. Um, but this is the, the, the general direction that the city is going, you know. Um, so I, I think the more that people are aware of that and hear of it, I think they'll kind of buy into the, 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 this new idea. So that's just a little comment. 
<laughs> if you guys can do anything about that. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Commissioner Zhang. <laughs> Commissioner Lamas. Thank you, Vice Chair. Um, just had <clears throat> more of a comment or suggestion um, because uh, there was a, uh, based on this, the, the topic of um, a homeowner, because I think this was part of the, the, um, the question that came up, like who's going to be taking advantage of this? Right? Is it going to be a developer um, or if it's going to engage homeowners that are looking to build units on their, their property? Um, I think it has a great opportunity for homeowners themselves to um, build out, um, you know, some of their property to, you know, for family or if they want to sublease or something um, to provide some, you know, some cash flow um, to help offset your costs, um, but also provide uh, other families an opportunity to a for a place to live. Um, and so my question or, or suggestion is um, if the city has engaged or can engage, like, financial institutions to see what kind of obstacles um, a homeowner may encounter if they're trying to split their lot, um, build it out, um, and possibly sell a portion of it. Because um, I know that was, you know, one of the initial issues um, that uh, folks had when looking at ADUs, and I know that was mentioned by one of the consultants, um, and that that financing piece is kind of evolving and there are programs in place for ADUs. But I'm curious if there's an opportunity to to really lean into allowing homeowners to take advantage of some of these opportunities and figuring out a way for banks to to kind of get on board with this too. Um, so I don't know the answer, but just just kind of a comment or suggestion to, to look into. Thank you. I yield my time. Uh, next, uh, Commissioner Buckley. Sorry, I forgot. Uh, thank you, Vice Chair. I forgot just to mention one thing or two things really. Um, I would I would encourage staff to look more closely at the combination between the uh, the floor area ratio and the unit cap. Um, it just it I I think I heard in the presentations what you're getting at, but it still doesn't feel like it makes total sense. So I think really giving us sort of a I don't know a, a more of an exploration of that so we can better understand where you're coming from there. Um, and I, I and I know some of that's the pressure around the number of units and the and what you're hearing from communities. But I do wonder, as uh, Commissioner Caden lifted up, and also uh, Commissioner um, Commissioner Yong lifted up as well, um, that um, it a lot of time has passed uh, since you started this process, and things have changed um, in the state. And I know I know a lot of things haven't changed too, but um, the the pressure. Um, that folks are under uh, to address a housing crisis. I'll just tell you as a former advocate, it, it's night and day from what it looked like in just 2019. And so um, you may find that as you explore floor area ratio and explore some of that reasoning that maybe all of those issues don't fully stand um, in today's um, housing environment. So that was all I wanted to add. Sorry, I forgot about it. Commissioner Thompson. I don't know why I'm not successful with this button. Um, thank you again. I, I think as a recommendation, as a overall, I'm going to second what um, Commissioner Keaton was saying about the utilization of any of the, it was said ambiguous, but definitely any words that don't align with um, a shared vision to really cut down any of that um, 
pauses or abilities for anything to get bottlenecked, um, which would include, especially around the built form, I know that is a heavy conversation that a lot of people like to engage in. Um, but when it comes to policy, I think it needs to be really clear of what is okay and what isn't, and that it's and it's loose enough that again, architectural style. But I, if that's not able to be determined, then don't put it in there. Would be my recommendation. Uh, Commissioner Young. Yeah. Um, thank you, commissioners. It was great hearing all your input. Um, I've learned a lot, and so appreciate. Um, all the great ideas um, that all of you guys have offered, so thank you. Um, I, I wanted to kind of go back to kind of something you, you mentioned about the aesthetic and the character of a neighborhood and that in, in some ways that there's a meta-narrative there, which is I want to preserve my, um, the profitability of my home so that when I do move out, I can sell. It's an investment, right? And I think that that is, I mean, that's a legitimate concern, right, for existing homeowners. And and I know that it, it feels like that there's like this an us against them type of um, rhetoric that's that's going on. And, and I guess w one thing that I would maybe um, propose is that we kind of, challenge that narrative, right? Um, does, does increasing density in an existing single family neighborhood necessarily lead to declined property values? Um, I'm not sure if that narrative um, is justified. I mean, I've been in other, <laughs> I've, I've gone down to LA, I've gone to areas where there's like mixed use of everything. And like, if I wanna buy a home down in LA, like a single family, like I, I'm still paying like $2 million just to, to get that single family home. And so I almost feel like this is kind of like that, that cannabis study that we did, right? Like a few years back, right? Is a, having a cannabis store next to this is, is gonna drive down my property values. And so, you know, I, I feel like for us to have a, um, a, a continuous conversation with stakeholders, right, in Sacramento who are homeowners, right, and who have a legitimate concern, right, that if we can provide some sort of informed discussion, does increased density necessarily lead to declined um, property values? Um, we have this, we have this uh, debate for affordable housing all the time within the industry. And so I think over time, I think it's proven out that, that that is just not the case. And so I feel like we can have this discussion maybe, again, it means like another study, right? I, I, I'm assuming it'll mean another study and maybe more work, but I feel like that narrative um, might actually benefit Sacramento to have that discussion because I think it kind of bleeds into so many other sort of discussion areas like affordable housing, increased density. So uh, that's just something to, to consider. Um, as far as the discussion on the, the density bonus, uh, I think when Commissioner Caden said, well, up to 120% AMI, I was like, I was cringing a little bit because I was like, I have mixed feelings, right? Because if you think about the the property tax exemption, right? If you restrict up to 120, 120% AMI, um, I think by the state of California, like you, you, you are entitled to some form of property tax exemption. Um, however, I think in in Sacramento, 120% AMI is like 
like market. <laughs> so, so in some ways you're, you know, in some ways you are incentivizing um, developers to, to build these needed units and you are in, in a way providing some sort of financial incentive to, to build this, which I think is great. We wanna see more units happen, but I don't know if it violates the spirit of kind of why, why this tax exemption is in place, which is to encourage you know, greater affordability and not necessarily these market units. But again, I, it's, it's something that the industry is, is doing because they were trying to promote more kind of middle, mixed middle income housing throughout the state, so I get it. But, um, but I guess that's a tension for, for you guys to, to resolve. Thanks. Commissioner Young, Commissioner Andrade. Kind of stole my thunder there. That's kind of what I was leading to. Uh, I think density is a good thing. I think more affordable housing is a good thing. Um, I believe more middle income or, or middle, missing middle housing is a good thing. What I worry about when I talk about unintended consequences are, you know, developers coming in and taking advantage of that, you know, and, and increasing rents. For example, you have a lot of density in San Francisco, but you have extremely high rents. You have a lot of density in Orange County, you have extremely high rents. So how does the correlation equal causation? So that's, that's what I worry about when I think about unintend, unintended consequences. So that's all I want to say. Thank you. I have one thing to add. <laughs> um, we were talking about this financing opportunities or how are we going to get, um, how are we going to create these opportunities for people who currently are like not in the space or not developers? Um, and there's a piece of the housing element that talks about alternative ownership. Um, and so it occurred to me that this is a really good space for um, the community land trust organizations and other nonprofit developers to, to be operating in. Um, and then we can leverage sort of a lot of the work that they've done to demonstrate that affordable housing doesn't ruin your neighborhood and all of that good work that has already kind of happened. Um, and, and then there's one other thing, I think, in terms of um, for the community kind of providing context. So we still have all these like sort of super juice the corridors concepts as well sort of like overlaying like what are the like the the targets like numbers wise um you know sensitivity analysis max min kind of a thing um in the neighborhoods versus in the corridors and sort of so you would expect there's kind of like a i don't know a gradual change shift from the the high density and intensity um into the neighborhoods and i think i know that we say that we don't really want to um, belabor the point about the comfort of existing homeowners. But I also think there was the, the other intent here was to provide a lot of different types and options for people um, because people have different preferences. So if they have the money, they might not want to live in a high-rise apartment. They might want to live in an ADU in someone's, you know, uh, like single-family neighborhood that's being upzoned. So... Uh, and with that, I see no other speakers. Um, we can conclude this item. And then the last item is public comments for matters not on the agenda. Is that correct? <laughs> Did I miss something? 
Vice Chair, there are no speakers for publics not on the agenda. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I forgot commissioner comments and ITS. So let's open it up to commissioners for that. We have out of ideas, but we'll come up with ones while we're sleeping. <laughs> Commissioner Caden. <laughs> Sorry, just a quick one. Yeah, I, um, Commissioner Lamas, you brought up the, um, the bill that just passed around uh, giving the uh, option for cities to look into um, a process by which you can sell ADUs separately. I know we're doing the full roundup of, of state ledge and that's, that's all coming later but would just encourage us to pursue that option if we, um, if we can. <laughs> All my mics are already on. Okay, <laughs> so um, I just wanted to let folks know there's a community event um, Friday, October 13th. 530 to 830 uh, on in Northgate. Um, it's called Cerveza which means beer land. Um, and uh, there's going to be a number of different breweries out there. And uh, this is part of a bigger effort to establish um, uh, like a sense of uh, an increased sense of community on Northgate. And a lot of folks are being really supportive and, and it's getting a lot of um, a lot of attention. So I invite folks to come out. Uh, to, to Northgate, join us and have a, have a couple drinks and listen to oldies, apparently, and street food. Thank you. Like fun. <laughs> uh, I see any other comments from commissioners? All right, now we're ready for public comments. Matters not on the agenda. Thank you, Vice Chair. There are no speakers for this item. Thank you, Clerk. Uh, this concludes today's agenda. Thanks, everybody, and have a great night. <laughs>